in any SWAT team is going to be successful. Whether you run 10 warrants a year or 150 a year, you've got to plan, you got to prep, and you got to do that. And you got to walk through that. And not only you got to understand it, but everybody else around you's got to understand what's expected of them, what's going to happen, how we're going to do it, what are our emergency action procedures if this happens, what is our fallback, and all those things. And so when you prepare for those things, it's it's easy to say, well, we'll handle it when we get there. Well, no, you, you're, you've already handled it in training and, in, you know, in debriefs and walkthroughs. So when it comes comes time to apply it, you've already got that file there. You're just waiting. Okay, that's what it is. You just lay that card down on the deck, and you're like, there it is right there. When you get there, I'm not at step two or three. I'm already at step number eight or nine, and I'm already at number 15 trying to work through that problem. How all that money we spend on training you and all this great gear, and you don't have what you need as a battery, and it fools operation. You know, just little things like that. It's those little things that require no great aptitude. It's just effort. And so having your gear ready, you know, being prepared is a big thing. And uh, I have been on, on the receiving end of a lot of things go my way just because you were quick to great operators did great things that day and solved problems which what you want to do and you realize really quick like i want to be on that camp not in that camp we came within a whisper dying and dr alex eastman dr jeff metzger what they did in that driveway form an emergency trade company and save that man's life is just still unbelievable think about what they did You're listening to the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast. Brought to you by the Assist the Officer Foundation. Since 1999, the ATO has given assistance to the first responder community. And now we want to give them a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but it is strong. We have differences. We don't always agree and we all make mistakes. But together we can grow, we can heal. And we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge the divide. Sun Tzu said, the art of war is of vital importance to the state. It is a matter of life and death, a road either to safety or to ruin. Hence, it is a subject of inquiry which can on no account be neglected. The art of war, then, is governed by five constant factors to be taken into account in one's deliberations when seeking to determine the conditions obtaining in the field. These are the moral law, heaven, earth, the commander, method, and discipline. Senior Corporal Matt Smith said, Carry extra batteries or I'll break my foot off in your hind parts. Our guest today is a 23-year veteran of the Dallas Police Department has been a part of the prestigious Dallas SWAT team for over 17 years. During that time, he has been trained in just about every specialty role offered, including gas and less lethal, high angle, ballistic breaching, sniping, energetic breaching, and yes, ATO fans, the infamous zoo rifle. He has served as an assistant squad leader or an ASL for six years. He was born and raised in East Bygod, Texas, and a graduate of both Tyler Junior College and Sam Houston State University. He's been involved in numerous high-profile incidents and is looked at internally as a go-to guy for planning and training. Matt, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Glad to be back. 
Thank you, Matt. Thank you for doing this. Absolutely. Is your third or fourth time on? Third. Hey, I, I, I see the downloads and your people demand you on, so we're going to milk we're going to milk the hell out of you. <laughs> That's just my family <laughs> doing that. You know. yeah. just, to help it out. just Smith County yeah. out there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Those are my people, man. <laughs> all right, so I'm Kent Wolverton. Uh, I've got got the mic today. Uh, Joe's getting a little bit tired of all this, so he said, uh, hey, run with this. He's going to be with us today, and I've also got Danny. Uh, but we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about Matt Smith. And, Matt, I know you're a big fan of the art of war, so we'll try to keep that in mind today as we progress through all these questions with you. Sure. Uh, but a couple softball questions. Let's uh, let's get you started. Talk about growing up out in East Texas. East Texas is great. We have a little bit of everything out there. And um, born and raised, lived my, almost my whole life in Wood County. And uh, my mom still lives outside uh, there outside of Tyler. And uh, we did a little bit of everything. You know, we had Lake Fort. We went fishing all the time. You, know, you have all the you have the piney woods. You have, you have more rain. You have more snow there than you do out here in Dallas. And um, you know, I grew up in the country. I've done all the stuff that people think about Texas. They go, you know, when you think about people, I've lived on a ranch. I did, you know, the horse, you know, know how to saddle a horse and do all that. I bailed hay for many years of my life, you know, doing that for the, a doctor that I work for. And... Uh, just a lot of that stuff that I think people, they, they symbolize what people are doing from Texas. Like, I did a lot of that growing up in the country, and uh, you know, I loved it. I had a great time growing up as a kid. I had a lot of fun. It's uh, not a whole lot of it translates to living and working in Dallas, but at the same time, you just you just got to learn how to do things and do it the right way because, you know, when you're 16 years old on, on a trailer, or I mean, I'm sorry, a tractor, out in the middle of this you know, huge field hauling and bailing hay, and you're by yourself. It's not like you you, know, you can sit around and go, hey, what are we supposed to do or whatever. They basically show you how to do it, and like, you need to go learn how to do this, and you need to do it. And so you have to learn how to be safe, how to be responsible at a very early age because you've got a lot of equipment and a lot of stuff that you're responsible for that I wouldn't let my 16-year-old be in charge of, I can tell you that. How, how old were you when you first started driving? 14. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was uh, <laughs> probably one ton truck. Oh yeah, well, I had a well, and I've told the guys a story before. I had a crew cab dually, one ton dually, and it had a granny low four speed in it, so it had a low one, two, and three. So you never start off in low unless you had a like a, a little pulling. Uh, yeah, you're pulling a large load, and we ran a bungee from the seat frame through the steering wheel. You put it in low, and the truck would barely, basically crawl. And whoever you were with that day, and sometimes by yourself, the truck would just drive itself, and you would stack the hay and load it on the on the square bales which you know they're heavy you know especially as a kid and you i'd wore out the top part of my jeans right there because you had to use your knee and your leg to kick it up because they were so heavy and you would do that and then as you start getting towards the end of the pasture you'd run up jump in the truck you turn the truck around <laughs> to go back down the other row of hay and you did that by yourself you know at 15 and it's not i mean look people do that all the time i mean it is you know thousands of kids do that all the time but that's what that's what you did and you're driving a, a tractor that probably cost at the time you know forty fifty thousand dollars with a thirty or forty thousand dollar baler behind it with the lights flashing going down a little fm road and people are passing you and you're you know you're 15 years old yeah, yeah. I, I bailed hey that was some of the hardest work because you ba- you had to walk alongside the trailer oh, yeah and stack it up and then what really sucked is when you got to where you needed to deliver it, you go inside a shed and unstack it inside there, and you're breathing in all the – yeah. I, oh, yeah. Was, I just – look at all that dust and everything we inhaled. It's and, an allergy you know, nightmare. Oh, yeah. And, uh, but I tell you, it helped me getting ready for football every year because you're out in the heat and you're in shape. So it wasn't like you had to come back and acclimate to the heat like a lot of kids did because you've been outside working all summer. And it was – hey, I, you know, making good money for a 15-year-old kid. 
you know, you're getting paid several dollars an hour. You earned it, though. Yeah, you did. Yeah, you earned it. I I tell you what, it made me, I was like, I don't want to do this for a living. I can tell you that. So, (laughs) (laughs) like, I got to go on and do something different. But it was was fun, you know, and you got to do a lot of things. So, you know, a lot of good stuff in East Texas. I had great fun. I grew up fishing on Lake Fork, you know, which anybody knows, anybody bass fishing, especially around here, that is, it's great. But those fish are fish so hard that you really kind of got to have good tackle and kind of know what you're doing because um, there's not, you know, there's not a little perch you're going after out there. What point in your life did you find out that you talk funny? I did not know I talked funny almost till I moved up here, which is funny because going to Sam Houston State University in uh, Huntsville, um, though it's you know still not the East Texas that I grew up in, it's it's far it's small enough and still East Texas enough to some degree where I, there was enough of people that sound like me, I guess, where I just kind of blended in, <laughs> and so. Not that I didn't know that, Gil, because, you know, I have family out in California. My mom was born there. We've been out to California many times. And so people would say something, but you're just like, well, they're weird. They're from California. They just they just don't listen right. There's a lot of truth in that. Yeah, there's <laughs> so. But I have been all up and down, you know, California. I've been to, you know, North Carolina. South. I've been all over the, the lower half of the U.S. And, you know, you just people say, hey, say this or say that. And you just like, well, because you're from Texas. Like now I realize I'm from East Texas. There's it's Texas is so big that you know, we have our own dialect. So it is a, uh, but yeah, I really didn't even think about it too much as far as people from Texas thinking that I sounded different until I've moved up here. Well, that leads right into my next question. Um, explain the difference between, uh, windows and winders. Well, you have a window. Well, there's a bunch of winders over there, so it's plural. <laughs> <laughs> and windows is, is multiple plurals. Yes. Yeah. Okay. It just depends yeah. on which side of the state you're standing in, whether that's correct or not. <laughs> okay, so why did you choose Dallas PD? Well, it wasn't like I sat up and said, hey, that's where I'm going to go. And I think, you know, and I, I'll admit this now, back then, you know, I think the uh, the U.S. Marshals was really what I really wanted to do. I thought that was going to be the place to go. And I thought that'd be really cool. And uh, at that time, I graduated our college in 99. They were like, hey, you know, we're not really not hiring right now. Go get some experience, you know, you know, all these things. And so I was like, where can I go to get real experience and do a lot of things early on? You know, and uh, so I was like, the large cities. You have Houston, you have Dallas, you have San Antonio, you have Austin. You know, you're looking at places like that. And being from East Texas, Dallas is obviously closer to where I grew up. I knew I was more familiar with the Dallas I had a cousin who was who was on Dallas PD. He was he's much older than me. He was actually older than my dad, but Danny Green was his name, and I, he pinned my badge on me because he was he was on for a couple of years. I think he left or he retired probably. I'd probably been on. I'd just come to SWAT, so maybe about six. I you know maybe after I'd been on, maybe six years. He he retired, but he'd been on for a long time. He worked patrol his whole career Southwest. He was he was down there his whole life, and uh, and Danny's just like, hey, I don't care where you go. Every department has its inherent issues. I don't care where you work. Dallas is no different. He said, but at the time, we go, we have a great pension. We have a great retirement. Everything was really good here. Uh, if you come here, you need to realize that this is a big city and things happen here. You know, this is not to be taken lightly. And uh, the recruiter called me. I was in my my senior year of uh, of college. And he says, hey, can you start the academy, which is like late February. I'm like, I'm about to graduate in May. Like, why would I quit now? He's like, well, we don't want to know we're going to have another academy and i was like well i guess it's not going to dallas and houston was like we're not doing anything and i'd actually called and because i have family out in la i was actually scheduled to go do their weekend trip in la to do 
and you just don't know. You're just trying to, you know, I wasn't loyal to anything. So what all agencies did you apply for? Well, I only applied technically with, uh, I did a, like a form, kind of like a questionnaire for Houston PD, uh, Dallas, and then I did the same thing for LA. But Dallas is the only one that I did the full, you know, nine yards, if you want to call it that, of applying, because everybody else was like, hey, we're not doing anything right now. On hold. On hold. It was like, just, we're not hiring right now. And I just didn't want to do a smaller department. Now, it doesn't mean anything against them. It's just, in my mind, I wanted to go to a large metropolitan apartment to get experience. And it was Dallas and Houston, San Antonio wasn't doing anything. Austin wasn't doing anything. And, you know, having family out in L.A. and, again, just being – 22 20 you know whatever just naive you're just like i'll go out there and check it out and see what i was doing so i called them and they were like very much like what we do here you come out for the weekend you knock it all out in a couple days and then we let you know and i was like when can they do that and they go we do them about every other week it's just a big you know this is what we do and so i was going i was scheduled to go um and then something happened i couldn't go and it was like okay i'm just gonna finish up my senior year and the dallas guy called and says hey we pushed a class back from the one I was going to go to to here. I'm like, I graduate like in two weeks. I'm like, why would I start now? Same kind of thing. He's like, okay, well, that class ended up getting pushed back to June, and which was my class, 262. And it just kind of just the way things kept working out. And it was like, you know, just it's, it just worked out too easy. I don't say easy, but it, just, it was just good timing. <clears throat> DPS wasn't hiring. Houston wasn't hiring. And I was like, you know, do I really want to go out to all the way out to California and start and do all that? Not that I couldn't have. I was like, you know, let, let me go up to Dallas. And it was, they were doing the same thing. You know, I was like, hey, you know, you can finish everything. And I had done all that in November in Dallas or in Houston for Dallas. And they called and go, can you start June 11th, which is a Friday? This is all my academy class started on a Friday, which I don't know if they do that now, but it was, we did. We started on June 11th, the 99. It was a Friday. And he says, can you be up here? I said, yeah. And so I was working for the Sheriff's Department, Walker County Sheriff's Department in Huntsville in the jail. I've been in there almost two years and I went in. Gave them my notice, and they were like, "Could you? Would you consider staying here?" I'm like, "No." You know, I was like, "This." I was like, "Hey, I, pre- I tell you what. One of the best things you can do is work in a jail, especially you know early on, because you get over your, you're having to go put hands on people, you know, and search them, and you know, and deal with people and all that, because that's just not it's not something you grew up doing, you know, having to you know. And so, <clears throat> working in a jail when you're in there, you know, all eight hours dealing with people, and you learn their scams, and you like. Because as a just as a person in general, you want to believe people. You think people don't try to lie, don't try to scam you. You learn very early on in working in the jail, forty hours a week. Everything they say is a lie. Everything they do is try to scam you. I think that probably puts you. I, I, and I, I experienced something similar working at Terrell at the mental hospital before this. Is it it introduces you to being in a hyper vigilant state all the time. You have to be aware of your surroundings, as opposed to when I drove a forklift. I mean, I didn't worry about anything. Yeah. Maybe a box falling on me. But when you're around other human beings and you're hearing them speak and you're watching their their body language and their their mannerisms, it be, at being so young and that probably I would imagine yeah. helped you. With I was that. 19 when I started the sheriff's yeah. department. Yeah. yeah, as opposed to trying to learn that as a rookie on the street. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, no, you have to get over it real quick. Just like just that hesitation. And I know on first phase of dealing with people, and it was just it because you're just past it. You know, it's just a, it's you know it's a confidence thing. Like, hey, this is the right thing to do. I need to do this, and so there's no question that helped me, you know, early on. And yeah, and uh, and I look back, it was a good time. I got good friends that I still have from there. And so, yeah, that was it. That's how I ended up in Dallas. It was just timing more than anything. And 23 years later, here I am. So this could have easily been Matt Smith, L.A. 
LAPD SWAT episode. Well, if it goes looking back, if you went to LA, you just never know. I mean, yeah. well, I never did I walk into DPD going, I'm going to try to go to SWAT. Okay. That was not part of the plan. I was not that I really had a plan, but it wasn't like I walked in going, that's what I really want to do. Did you think maybe this was, did you ever still have the, uh, the U.S. Marshals still in the back oh, yeah. of your mind? Okay. No, I tested for the U.S. Marshals no. June of 2001. Okay, what happened September 2001? A lot of shit happened. Yeah, yeah. 9-11. Yeah. And I had, there was like 900 of us at the convention center that signed up for that test because it was, they had had a hiring freeze for the last couple of years. They weren't doing anything. And so I went down there to take that test with every intention because I wasn't married. I was, you know, whatever. I was like, I'm going to take this. I'm going to get this job and I'm out of here. And 9-11 happened and it locked everything up. And then the U.S. Marshals totally changed their whole directives and what they did. And they, and this is before really emails, they sent actual still letters back then saying, if you want to be considered for these new role of a U.S. Marshal, understand these are the things that are going on now, we'll continue otherwise. And I was like, that's not what I, would, I didn't a- want to be. Air Marshals, that's what they Well, yeah. the big <laughs> thing was Air Marshals and mm-hmm. courtroom security. That yeah. was the big 082, thing. 082. So yeah, and so and I was like, no, thank you. And again, not sit there and go, you know, I wish this, that. It's just sometimes just the way the life shakes out, you know. And so that's what happened. I, refu- I declined to keep. The, the going in the process and that was it for me yeah talk about where you went on the department early in your career and, and what kind of police work you were drawn to he didn't go he just stayed at northeast the whole time just sat there and just yeah i did nothing yeah <laughs> well it was funny is is that when you're in the academy of course a lot of the fdos that come out to say um if you're gonna be real police and, you, and there's no south central back then you're like you're, you go to southeast they go southeast or some of them say you know south well my cousin works southwest and you know they're like this and they're like every other channel is whatever and so and there's only there was only 26 of us that graduated in my academy it was a real small academy class and uh we had some people that were from dallas and so when you put your list in um i put in uh southeast and then northeast because i was living in mesquite at the time i'm like well, that's just easier to drive and uh we were like almost all of us were selected for Southeast or Southwest out of the 26. And what we were told was, is that at the time uh, what they, we still had captains in the department when I heard on and each division had one captain and the captain Northeast basically pushed back and says, we need more officers up here. We're our call load, which it is that call loads out of control. It still is. Hmm. And uh, we need up here. And so if you had Northeast anywhere in your first couple, we all got rerouted to channel two. And I think nine of 26 of us went to channel two out of my class. That's a lot. Yeah. Matt feeling like a lot of us. And, uh, Hey, you know, and you know, there's great police on every channel. Mm-hmm. There's, there's less than still police on every channel and every watch. And I went up there and you learn real quick. Hey, this thing is moving, you know, it's busy. Yeah, it is busy. And it's, you have all the apartments and everything. And so it's, it's a, it's a different, style up there and i mean we were in chases and doing all this i, I had a great time i learned a lot up there you know and if just like every channel I, it, again it comes back to your ftos who you have they really kind of help put you in that general mold and all that and i had my, my first fto was great he was just he, he was good at just easing things in you know and learning the job and just trying to figure things out my third phase uh trainer rob Harmon. great guy great street cop he knew just about he's like hey do the you know he just knew all that stuff, and I learned so much from that guy that it really just, you know, kind of helped me set my, you know, my style, how I wanted to be once I got out there by myself. So, but that's how I ended up at Channel 2 is because they wanted people, or, you know, they, I guess, complained enough to say, hey, we need some more people. And so nine of the 26 of us went up there. Yep. Well, that's not too bad, I guess. If you got have to go to Northeast, you can get drafted that way. Yeah. 
Um, when did you decide that SWAT was what you wanted to do? Well, again, not walking in there thinking SWAT was a thing. I, um, where I was working at the time, the, the five points was the two forties and I was, uh, element two forty six, And it's just, I had part of five points was part of my beat. And they had come in there and they just, and Sergeant Alfred Nunez had just taken over that sector. And he was like, I need some people to work these beats. And he says, I'm going to shake some things up. And he asked me if I'd come over. I said, yeah, I'd be happy to come over there. Because we were at five points all the time anyway because of all the calls. And so I just went to channel or I went to the 240s and stayed up there and was, was answering just calls and just doing, you know, chasing, you know, stolen cars, doing everything that everybody else was doing, having a good time with it. And the um, uh, ATF wanted to do a joint investigation up there that was going to go on for like a year. And they had, were meeting with at the time when uh, Chief Brown was Lieutenant Brown over. He was the admin lieutenant over there, and, and uh, Turners was our deputy chief. They had a meeting with them, and they just said, "Hey, we need to bring in some people that know the Five Points area." So they just kind of found a few guys that knew the people around Five Points. Just kind of had a, a you know a, their finger on the pulse of the of the uh, sector. And I was I got pulled into this meeting, and uh, the ATF agent was in there, and they're like, "Hey." Uh, we understand that you know about this sector. You know, can you help us out? Like, sure. And I said, okay, what do you need? He goes, well, we're going to get with you about this. Okay. So I started going back to detail because they're at for detail. And they go, uh, no, you're going to deployment. I was like, okay. I was like, I didn't know we were going to. He goes, no, there's no openings. We're just putting you over there so you can work with the ATF to do all this kind of stuff. And it was right then and there you start working on a deployment. And now you're out of the big mold of just answering calls with, you know, 50 guys just shagging calls. And now you're in a small group that's working on a more specific task, you know, a little bit more specialized. And I, like within one week, I was like, man, this is so awesome. Being able to go and work on certain things, not just being hung up on that radio, having answer calls. And not Teamwork you, and yeah. specific, we're honing your skills on a specific yeah. job. and learning that job. And then you see these guys that you really didn't interact with too much, and you're like, these guys have been on for a long time. And Dave DeRica, Mario Castanon, all those guys were – they're great street cops and they knew so much. And you're like, I knew nothing about this world. Like I've been on for a couple of years. I'm like, well, how did I not know about all this? It's just because you're just busy shagging calls. That's all you do. And you're doing your own little thing in your car. And so you start doing this. And, you know, next thing I know, I was like, man, this is, this was the greatest time. I mean, being able to be, you know, mission driven centric on things. And so you're just doing that and working with things. And uh, when I went through the Academy, Steve Huff, who had been in SWAT for a long time was out at the range. And just Steve was in charge of my group that I was being trained at the range. And Steve, his last couple of years, he wanted to come back to patrol before he retired. He left the range. And so when he came back out, uh, you know, just being busy doing things out in patrol and just interacting with guys, you know, he was the first one that said to me, he goes, hey, have you ever thought about going to SWAT? And I said, not really. I said, you know, I've been on for a couple of years. I'm like, I was like, I don't know. You know, I just was so having so much fun doing what I was doing. He goes, it's something you ought to look into. I think you'd be really good at that. I think you would enjoy it. He goes, if you like what you're doing now, I think that's kind of like that same mold, that small unit. You know, and so I thought about it, and you know, just different guys would talk about it. Then Rector McCollum comes up and says the same thing, and says, "Hey, you need to go do this." And uh, we walked in one day, and we we're just doing our stuff. And, you know, it was just kind of like he just kind of sunk in. Hey, that might be something I want to do. And it, it's not like it is now with the 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 ability to get to with those guys is just different. You know, other than SWAT putting on for me for my group. We went through uh, active shooter, we called it rapid rescue, because we didn't do it in the academy like they do now. It was after the fact, and so we went out to NAS and went through that. And that was really the only kind exposure. of exposure, yeah, exposure interaction I ever had with SWAT. And I was like, that'd be really cool. And so, kind of once 
that talk started doing and then went out there and did the actor shooter stuff with SWAT. You're like, man, this is really cool. And it kind of just whet your appetite. And I walked in one day and Mario Castanon said, Hey, there's an opening on the, on the internet for a uh, SWAT. He was going to put it, I've been talking about it. He goes, you going to put it in for it. And they're like, are you going to check it out? I was like, no, I want to, I want to pursue this. And I uh, went through the whole thing, emailed Sergeant Gary Henley, who was ended up being the Sergeant that selected me. I put it in for it. You know, and uh, we tested in November, did our interviews in December, I believe. And I was supposed to come over in February. And just like every other transfer, it got hung up and stalled. And I came over on a special assignment in March. And then April of 2005, I came over. And uh, so it was just, it was kind of like a whirlwind. It happened in, you know, just kind of talking about it for about a year or two. And then, bam, here's the opening. I applied. And it got I, real. It did. And you don't realize just how real it is till you get over there. You're like, man. So how, how many people applied whenever you apply? Well, for me, there was 21 of us that mm. put in for the one opening. One yeah. opening. Yeah. Okay. And and just for the listener, we, we, we've had on several people from SWAT on, the, on this podcast. Can you kind of talk about the, the process of when you apply and all, all that you have to go through to, uh, to be selected? Well, it was different back then than it is now. But at the same time, it's, you know, and they mirror some. You have an opening, you apply for it, and – at that time, openings only come up every now and then. It, yeah. was, it was just different back then. And uh, you had to. I was just saying, yeah, you got to wait for someone to drop off. Right. Either they decide to retire or attrition or injury and they can't do it anymore. Right. Yeah. yeah. So uh, you put in. And at that time, you had to gather all your documents, your, you know, your, uh, your pistol qualifications, your driving record. That's a big thing because obviously you're going to take home car. And then your uh, time cards, you know, that things like that. And this is the same stuff you have to do for any yeah. – even today you still do all that. You have to gather all that, submit it, and then you email the sergeant saying, hey, I'd like to be considered for this opening. Sure. Uh, at that time, uh, they brought you in for the PT test. That was the first thing you had to do. And first they, thing. First okay. thing. And uh, before you do anything else, because if you can't make the PT test, then you don't continue. And so out of the 21 of us that took the test, two of them failed. So only had 19 of us moving forward. And it was a kind of like today. It was kind of a overcast, late November day, cool. I mean, it was not very good, conducive for outside. And so we show up at Central, take the PT test, drive over to Cobb, finish it out there. And you're just out there with a bunch of SWAT guys that are just, you know, timing you and telling you and getting your name because they don't know who you are. And uh, the guys that I work with in deployment, they showed up out there, you know, and we were at Third Watch. So they drove in on their own time, you know, to be there early in the morning in bad weather to cheer you on to support you and i'll never forget those guys for doing that you know nice. I, yeah it was good dudes and there's mario and dave and them all yelling at you just you know trying to make fun of you the same time you're running your lap and mm-hmm. everything but great guys and uh sergeant henley is in the van i didn't even know who who he was or whatever never even met him yet and so you're getting done and they pull up in the warrant van he slides the door open and goes all right good job i'll be in touch get out of here and we're like who is that and they're like, that's the sergeant you're blind with it's like okay it's like did not see him the whole day because he was inside the van staying out of the weather so he was smart <laughs> and uh so you took the pt test and then they schedule your interview and they email you and you come in and do your interview and back then you interviewed with the sergeant and the squad that had the opening it is not like it is now with a panel of supervisors and so the one sergeant and then the squad that had the opening was doing the panel. And so you sat down and talked just them and them only. And, of course, they go over, you know, they're all their, their questions they ask you and, you know, what do you think it needs to be in SWAT and all that. And it's just once you kind of get into that and, and man, you're, and you want to do that, that's something you really want to do, which I did, man. I just I could not wait. Like, you know, and you don't have any idea you're going to get picked. But I was like, it was like my you mission. You have an opportunity. Yeah, we have an opportunity. But it was like, man, this is what I want to do. I will not. 
you know, be turned away. And I was, and I was already telling myself, I don't get this one because you're always told you're never, nobody gets picked the first time, all this kind of stuff. Just be prepared. And I understand why people said that. But so I'd already kind of said, Hey, I'm probably not going to get this one, but it's a good, good exposure. Come in and do the best. And then it was like my quest to come back, you know, and to reapply as many times as I needed to, to get over here. And, uh, so you, uh, and I, and I've, what was, what was weird is, is the station sergeant at the time said, Hey, your par came through for SWAT. I didn't even know what that really meant. I'm like, what does that mean? They go, you're going to SWAT. I had not been told that officially. And they're like, I was like, I hadn't heard that. He's like, well, okay, forget that I told you that because it's probably not supposed to be told you that. And Typical so, bad communication. Yeah, yeah. And so and I had not heard anything from SWAT. So I sat on it for a few days, and then I got a hold of the Sergeant Henley. He's like, hey, there's a hang-up in personnel. I'll be in touch. And it took a little while for it, you know, just like every other transfer, they'd never go off without a hitch. And so he called and said, hey, we're getting you over on special assignment. Your transfer goes over in a couple of weeks. Uh, meet us at the range. And so that's kind of how it happened. And here I am, 17, you know, over 17 years later, still here. So talk about the guys that were in your squad. Who was who was influential to you early on? Well, again, you had a much bigger team back then. And A&E unit were really – two units and not that you didn't see the other guys in the other unit but you had the guys in e unit and you come over and you, you had what squad well i was in the 70s which was the sniper squad right and you had Kristen del sandro and eric eisenberg were the two in the squad and they were this um again just the snipers so back then the specialized yeah uh, their specialties were broken up into it Two entry teams, the 50s and the 80s were the entry teams, the 60s were the negotiators, and the 70s were the snipers. And even though you were in that squad, as a new guy, you're expected to go do all this training with, with, the, you know, with the entry teams. And so uh, Tim Houston was the ASL of the 50s, and Bodie Sark was the ASL of the 80s at the time. And Tim had uh, uh, Guy Schwartz, he had uh, Misty Van Kieran, Todd Wellhouse, and those guys. And then Bodie had... Hack, Dale Hackbarth, and uh, Chuck. Chuck Del Tufo, and Ed Menchaka. And those were kind of like, you could tell those were the groups of the two entry teams that kind of like, those are the guys that kind of knew what was going on and really everybody went to. And so my first week over here, Sergeant Henley says, uh, okay, if we show up on anything and I'm not there, he goes, you go find Tim Houston. And he goes, you just stay with him. You do exactly what he tells you to do. He goes, don't go anywhere else. And I hadn't even met him at the time. And I was like, okay. And I was like, so he's like, you just go find him. And he's going to stick you in a corner somewhere and just stay out of the way. And because uh, he's like, I'll be doing my thing on, you know, wherever he is. He says, you know, basically saying, I don't have time to deal with you. You just go find somebody else and let them deal with you because I'm busy. And I get that. That's fine. No big deal. And uh, so you're, you're just learning different things. A lot of those guys all contributed one way or another but uh you, you know i don't care where you are you move to a new school or you go to a new job it, you start trying to line up people who you have similar views and you know and you know and ways of doing things and how you simulate and everything and uh there's no question you know i you know was listening to tim you know and not that Bodie and dale and those guys didn't do a lot for us they did and they did a lot of stuff but Bodie left you know relatively uh, you know soon after i got there and we had that big realignment and this is the way it did. And so there's, you know, no doubt that Tim was probably the most instrumental as far as, you know, helping show us how to do this job. Not just me, all the new guys. Everybody just listen to him. Because, it, again, you look you look around and go, that dude knows what he's talking about. And not what, that everybody else yeah. didn't either, but, like, that dude is the dude. What so, stuck out most? What stuck out most would he, would he, would he preach to this? With Tim? Yeah. Well, it's just, just a very easygoing, calm manner, you know, and just like, hey, this is – 
you know, in, 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 you know, in stating the obvious, like, look, this is we're not not for the faint of heart over here. You got to learn this job. You got to learn it. You got to learn it. You got to figure it out how to do it because it's real, you know. And because he had been here for a long time, and you know, he had been involved in a lot of stuff, so he knew what you know what the what the time of day and all that kind of was. And I, I think he's smart enough to realize, hey, you got to set that precedence early and mold these guys and let them know it's not time to be like all your work to get here means nothing other than you're here. It's, it starts today. And he's like, there's a lot going on. And you, you got to learn how to do this job. And he's just, you know, because he was a sniper at, at times and he was a, a breacher and obviously an ASL and entry guy that he understood you just can't be one dimensional. Like you got to come over here and you got to fit in and be able to be an asset. And he would say, hey, we're going to go do training today. Do you want to come with us? Because I wasn't in his squad. And I wouldn't just meet the other new guys too. And he was like, yeah. And so we would go and do stuff. And he took time to, to show you the basics, learn how to do the basic stuff, to do what's really, you know, important. And uh, Foundation for you. Yeah. No yeah. How to be a solid professional. That's one thing. You just look at him and he just looks like a professional. Yeah. yeah. Misty, oh, yeah. Misty love. loves yeah. him. Yeah, he, yeah well, he was her ass. Yeah, ass. he's a solid dude. And he doesn't get the recognition that he deserves, you know. And, you know, people can say, I'm like, you know, maybe I'm biased towards him. I'll say it right now. There's nothing wrong emulating somebody who's been doing it, the same job you're doing at a high level for a long time. And people, you may not like that person, but you'll never hear anybody say, that dude didn't know what he was doing, or mm-hmm. he wasn't squared away. Everybody knows that, and he is, and he's. And I'm good friends with him today. And so, again, you different, just like every trainer, you had multiple trainers on training. There's one guy probably that you had an FTO that you're like. Now, Rob Harmon was mine that you mold your game after. There's no doubt. And so, you know, I, I, I still do things today that I hear myself saying things now that I heard him say to us because he, you know, he's just a squared away dude. And, you know, and I'm very thankful to have that opportunity to learn from him. Yeah. You keep mentioning ASL. Can you describe to the listener of the non-police that what ASL is? Cause you, you were actually one yourself. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, again, it's just like it's and for people in the military, those non-commissioned officers, mm-hmm. that's what an ASL is, assistant squad leader. And they are the senior guys that are in those squads that, it is not that you had to be the biggest, strongest, the fastest, or the best shooter. It helps to be really good at all that. But he's that guy that is knows what to do. He's squared away that people trust. And when they calms up on the radio and going, this is what we need to do, people don't hesitate going, you know what, that's probably the best thing to do because they have confidence in him. So that's the biggest thing about that is having a squad leader in ASL is that when you suggest something, you bring things up. And not necessarily you're going to agree with it, but they have confidence in what you're saying like, that guy's done it. He's been there. He's probably done what he's saying a thousand times, or he's maybe trying to help me out saying, Hey, you might want to consider doing this. And so those guys are instrumental. And just like in any, they run the show. I mean, they're the guys that make this thing work every day. There's no doubt. Is it like a liaison between a sar- the squad and a sergeant? Basically, yeah. In yeah a, in there's a no doubt. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I think any good sergeant understands, especially because majority of sergeants that come over were never in SWAT as operators. So they really have to rely on their ASLs to bridge that gap and to help that. And uh, even if even if you have been there before, it, it's, it is, it's a culture there. And it's been in Dallas SWAT long before I got there. It'll be there long after I'm gone that this is how it's all set up. And this and it runs smoothly this way because they get those ASLs are in the fire. They're up there making those decisions at the door, and I, and I think everybody recognizes that. Hey, just that's just the way to do it. I'll, I'll ask Kent's perspective on what an ASL is because he's been on before, right, on the podcast. Have you introduced him really before? Kent, I don't know if the listeners know that they, Kent used to be a team leader or a sergeant on SWAT. We didn't really go into that. How much? many years? Uh, six and a half. Yeah. So. What's your perspective on what an ASL is? I, I think the A actually stands for actual. 
as far as the actual squad leader, um, stepping over there in my experience, and I don't want to make it about me today, but you quickly realize how much you don't know, or you step on your own, you know, and you, you don't want to be that guy who's trying to, to make the calls on these situations when you don't know what you're doing. So you rely very heavily on the guys that do. And I think that the, the ASL position is genius in, in the way we implement it in the Dallas SWAT team because it allows somebody who has the experience and the knowledge to be that leader still. And, I mean, I, I look at it as the actual squad leader more than the assistant squad leader because you're not assisting anybody. You're really being assisted no. by the sergeant more than anything. Yeah. I have, yeah, I, I tell the story. We were during we were on this uh, call at one time, and I'm just like, I've got all these ideas about what I want to do. And I was like, what about this? What about this? And, you know, Tim's just sitting there looking at me. He goes, okay, here's the nine reasons why we don't want to do that. You know, and he just lists off one. And you're just like, I didn't even think about that. And he's like, and he goes, you will. You know, like, you'll figure it out. You know, people do. It just takes time. And because they've been there, make those made those mistakes themselves, and they've they've been the new guy a long time ago. And it's it's not for everybody, just like in any other job. It's but you know that's you have to have a lot of focus and attention span about what's going on because you got to be able to take in not just what you're doing, but everybody's doing. And you know, and you know, you think of a quarterback or something like that where you're having to see what all the different you know protection and routes and all that. So there, there's a lot going on. I'm not trying to you know oversell it. It is, but hey, there were great ASLs when I got here. You know, uh, you. It is a it is a task that when I got the job, when he left and I got that job, I didn't take it lightly. I, I take a lot of pride in doing that job, and I work hard at it. And, you know, and I made my mistakes, as you will, but I, it's something that I, I come in every day going, hey, you know, I, you got to be you got to be great, be, you know, because people, you know, I think there's a great saying, when uh, much is given, much is expected. And so I think that's a great way of looking at it, that, you know, they're counting on you, and that's your job. Yeah, and I've always felt like you've treated that as its own specialty. Like you, you study leadership, you're studying how to be a good ASL and manage a squad, not just it's a label. It's a label that gets attached at the end of your name as a job descriptor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Pressure is no. a privilege for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, like you said, anybody can type those letters behind your name. But if the guys don't believe in you, don't have trust in you, it doesn't really matter. You know, it didn't, it's just an element number for that at that point. Let's go back to talking about Tim Houston. I mean, he's just basically the prototypical SWAT guy. Like when you close your eyes at night and you're having your bad dreams, Tim Houston is the one you want to show up. I mean, squared away uniform, square jaw, put together, uh, uh, a flat shoot, top you can, can PT, set your clock like, to. Yeah. yeah, just and make decisions and also command and provide leadership. He's and, enormous. Yeah. I mean, he's just a, a big dude. Like, I mean, he was in his 50s still doing this stuff, and he'd be in there deadlifting and barefoot in the gym you know you're just like what who is this guy i just saw another day and then, you know and tim he could back pass the pt test right now oh no yeah. doubt yeah. you know and again and he's he was that professional you know that anyway again all different types you know and uh i learned how to do this job a lot from him do i do exactly the way he did no you're gonna put your own spin on your own flair i'm a little bit maybe a little bit more direct than sometimes than he was. I, yeah, t- yeah, I tell the story, too. He'd be like, did you see what Joe did? You're like, no. He's like, okay, well, this, whatever. And I'm like, okay, well, are you going to go yell at him? Or he's like, no, you go you go talk to him. And that was just kind of the way he's doing things. Like, he would try not just to overbury and, like, you know, just come down on top. Like, he would talk about it and just see if other people recognized it and then, like, has a group. So instead of just – 
him just coming telling you, hey, you're wrong, don't ever do that again. We would discuss it like, hey, what was the thought on this, Joe? And you're like, okay, this. And then kind of walk you through it. And a lot of times he would let you tell yourself, I just screwed this up. You're an idiot. You know, whatever. And you're like, man, that's a Jedi mind trick he just pulled on me. You know, like he got me to admit it without even saying it. And I just think that's part of his in his own genius in his own way. That's just his style. And I, many times I was involved in that either him sending somebody over telling me, don't ever do that again, or, you know, he'd involve this. And I, I, I look back on those those years and learning that job again. Chuck Del Tufo had a great, you know, personality, and I love Chuck. And he did a lot of things. He was much more vocal about certain things with that Boston accent that he has. And he was just – I love the way he talked about things. But, again, when it when it was all really getting crazy, you know, when things needed to be settled down, he'd just walk right in and go, okay, this is what we're going to do. A, B, C, one, two, three. And everybody's like, okay, it's time to – you knew who was in, the boss was. You knew who was in charge. And he's like – and. If my family was being held hostage, there's nobody I'd want, you know, running that detail more than him. You know, real professional, right real oh, professionals. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, no doubt. All right. So back to our book here. The supreme art of war is to subdue the enemy without fighting. Explain how that resonates with you and your, uh, your developing plans for SWAT. You know, the dynamic versus surround and call out or even the development of the matrix. You know, the different things that you do before you even get into fighting. Well... One of the things that you learn early over over here, it is not about just shooting X rings and you know bench pressing weight and doing all this. All that matters. Don't 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 kid yourself. It it does. But it's a thinking man's game over here more than anything. And uh, there are a lot of good dudes out there that can shoot really good or bench press all this or do all this. Doesn't mean it's going to equate to what we do. It is a absolutely a thinking man's game. You got to realize that early on. And it's not just about showing up and doing PT and shooting and doing all those other things. You've got to learn not just the how to do it, but the why to do it. And that's something we talked about in the the Dynamic Warrant uh, podcast is that you've got to learn these jobs, and you got to learn how they apply. And today's operation, it may be 100% applicable the way we're going to do it this way, and tomorrow's might be something totally different. And so that's what that professional is, is you've got to learn how to apply them equally at any given moment. The only way you're going to do that is by training and reps and live experience. And I think that's what – you know, a lot of people don't recognize it goes into it. So, the, you know, the art of war talks about that, the the mindset of preparing, you know, to win before you ever go. And so that's how you win these wars. And, you know, for us, the operations is by doing all this pre-planning and having all this set. And even if it's a live oper- or a, like a HR you're getting called out to, even though you're not pre-planning it, you are in a sense and you're doing your training. You're doing your walkthroughs. You're doing your runs. You know, you're doing your reps is that you're preparing for that. And that is something that I think that, you know, in any SWAT team is going to be successful. Whether you run 10 warrants a year or 150 a year, you've got to plan, you got to prep, and you got to do that. And you got to walk through that. And not only you got to understand it, but everybody else around you's got to understand what's expected of them, what's going to happen, how we're going to do it, what are our emergency action procedures if this happens, what is our fallback, and all those things. And so when you prepare for those things, it's it's easy to say, well, we'll handle it when we get there. Well, no. You you're, you've already handled it in training and in, you know in debriefs and walkthroughs. So when it comes comes time to apply it, you've already got that file there. You're just waiting. Okay, that's what it is. You just lay that card down on the deck, and you're like, there it is, right there. So I think that applies much to what he's saying in that you know in that. Is it pre- just preparing for contingencies? I mean, oh yeah, B and C and D and E. I mean, if needed, well, that we you know, if at least going, have it something in in mind. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if you're if you're going through. The A side door and the in the C side door, and we're doing two, you know, breach points with port and covers and a pool and all this. 
you go, okay, this is our plan. This is our master plan, how we want everything to go. Now, here's eight things that we can see right now that could throw this off. There could be a car out front that keeps the pool from going. We could have people out front, which we've had. I mean, I've had a woman walking out the door behind, letting the, the, the cage door slam behind her, holding a, a eight-month-old baby because she just went in there and bought dope with holding her baby in her hands. That totally throws off what you're trying to do on the front side. And so you have to talk about all these contingencies. There's no time for a committee out there when all this thing's bailing off of an APC or jumping out of the van, and that thing's already moving. you got 20-something guys that are going to their missions. You can't get on the radio and get all that out. There's no way. And so you have to have – it's kind of like a scramble drill to equate it to the NFL or something like that, that if the quarterback's protection breakdown, he starts scrambling, you're like, the route that I'm running right now won't solve this. I've got to do this. And so – that's very, you know, similar what this is, is that you're pulling up and we now see that there are people outside on the A side. Well, if they're, if they're going to the C side, they know right now that they're not doing the pool. Matt and those guys are not going to do the pool on the, a, on the A side with the APC because there's nine people out front. Right? We can't do that. We can't put those people in harm's way. So now they recognize that they're having to alter their plan. And we've already talked about that. If we can't do the pool, we're going up to this. We're going to go manual. And Joe, you're bringing the pry up. We're going to do the pry on the on the cage. We're not doing the pool. And everybody's already talked about that. But if you don't go over that in training and work on that and practice that and discuss that in your pre-plan and your pre-brief, because when you do show up and those people are in the front yard and you falls can't apart. do that, it all falls apart. And then everybody's like, what are we going to do? You don't have time to get on the radio and talk about that because – it's live, you know, and those people are scattering, going everywhere, and that's how you win on a dynamic warrant is being dynamic. And when you're slowing down, you don't know what to do, you lose that initiative, and that's how things can go wrong. You have to prepare for the what-ifs. Oh, absolutely. Don't happen. Yeah, there's no question. Yeah, you know, like Matt's talking about, it's not just even preparing for it, but it's just having it in the front of the mind and worked out. And, and Matt talks about even having it rehearsed. Like physically, it's in the muscle memory, rehearsing some of this stuff because if you go live – and do this and things start changing and there's audibles that takes up brain power a lot more brain power work whereas i've already worked through it before and i've thought about it and i've rehearsed it and it's not only in my mind it's in my muscles yeah well Me- this i'm sorry go ahead no mentally rehearse the mentally rehearse things is so important even oh, danny yeah. even we're out there chasing dope just yeah imagining visualizing what yeah. we were going to do like hey here's the plan yep well you talk to any great batter you know they talk about that making contact with the ball and you listen to I uh, was listening to a guy that was a, a, a billiards, you know, he does a nine ball. And he was talking about how he lines the shots up in his mind. So when the break happens and he's seeing the balls, he's just seeing how that whole, when I hit it here, how he's setting. And I think that's a, you know, a good illustration. He's like, if I hit the two ball trying to go to the three, I got the cue ball. I've got to get it over there to line me up because of where that ball is. And so I'm not, I'm, but I'm also looking at the, at the four ball. And then the fight, and he's, and that is very much like what we, you know, yeah, everybody, where, every, where your actions put you, do they put you in a better position as well? Yeah. So not just taking an action on something, but after I take that action, where does that end up the team or where do we end up right. with this? And, you know, and senior guys and, you know, and Daniel does a great job. We have a lot of guys over there. It's not just the ASL that does that. We have a lot of guys that can do that. But in a, in a sense, he's going to come back to you like, hey, you're, that's your part of your job is not only to make sure that somebody has done it, but then it's, it's correct and you apply it. And so you see that a lot uh, with us. It's like, okay, if there's a car out front, what are we going to do? If there's people out front, we're going to do. Or if they're not there, what are we going to do? And so a lot of that matters. Uh, that pre-planning is critical. So from the supervisor standpoint, the way you guys would plan things in Dallas, the sergeant really doesn't plan it. Mm. You know, the sergeant is almost the approval. 
right. and then a conduit to the lieutenant who actually finally approves what we're actually going to be able to do. So knowing that there's guys that actually understand all the nuances. And then when I came in and I'd say, okay, tell me what you want to do. I could ask some people why they wanted to do it and they wouldn't be able to answer. And at that point I had to look to somebody else and be like, Hey, why are we doing this? Right. You know, let's, let's talk about what could happen here and what couldn't. And you get that a lot with the newer guys when they're starting to plan warrants. Initially they're planning it with somebody more senior. And then when they get on their own, sometimes they, they haven't picked up all the, the messages that you were giving them. So from the supervisor standpoint, it was nice to have those guys that could come in and say, Hey, this is why we want to do what we want to do. And it makes it a whole lot easier for me to say, okay, I know that Matt understands what he wants to do with this. Now I feel more comfortable explaining it to the Lieutenant. Sure. Yeah. Um, talk about developing your matrix. How many times have you done that? Oh man. Well, <laughs> and I, I want to document it on the internet yes. for, for keeps. Well, I can tell you that. Well, I don't know if there's a, I have a good number. It is, Many renditions. Well, first of all, is there an acronym for it? There has to be an acronym for it, right? <laughs> well, I guess if we'll, not, we'll have we'll let we'll Joe come up with it up. by the end I'll, of the day. Yeah, I'll, I'm going to work on that now. <laughs> <laughs> Turn the, my mic off. And you know, over. and that started a long time ago before really it was even more of a – it wasn't even really a catchphrase back then. It was – and and uh, we were just sitting around, and it was – you know, and I was like, again, this was many, many years ago, and that I was like, you know, we got to come up with a better way of doing this. And, you know, I think yeah, all great ideas start off like, well, somebody needs to do that. And it's like, well, somebody needs, you know, and then it's just like, you know what? I'm going to look into this. And I kind of did. And I just kind of got hungry with the idea that I think there's a better way of doing it. And started reaching out and um, really explain it because I don't know that everybody would understand what well, we're talking about. Well, for us, you know, and the way it applies for, for just SWAT in general, a lot of SWAT teams have been doing it for a long time this way. It's a matrix, the threat matrix. And what it is it takes in? factors and a lot of it is either dealing with the suspect that you're going after suspects and then the location that you're going to there's inherent issues with all that you know is this person a uh, is he wanted for murder or is he wanted for burglary is he what's his you know career been like he's got a lot of violent felonies is he known to run you know has he shot at people is he carrying weapons is he you know all these things that can go into him you know and then you have the location itself as far as is it heavily fortified? Is it upstairs apartment? Is you know how barricaded is it? There's a camera. Is it, you know where is it on the block? Is it in the corner? Is it in the middle of the block? Is there an alley? And all these different you know factors that go along in it that contribute to the plan on okay how difficult is this mission and how much resources and assets do we need to bring to bear to solve it and say this is a upstairs apartment one window one door or is this a it's a duplex that has four doors on it, and they've kicked out the wall in between. They have access to both of it because we see that. And so you're like, it's not a, and it's not necessarily always the size of the structure. It's the complexity of it that has a lot to do with it. And so some of those duplexes are not a large structure, but you got four doors coming into the house that can get you anywhere in it. There's a lot of bigger homes that only have that. And so it can, you, you have all those factors, and it was really, and so looking around the country. Uh, there was a lot of different renditions out there, and a lot of them were you got to build a point system up, and people's math gets fuzzy sometimes when they're adding points up, and who was going to be responsible for performing that warrant and all these things. And I reached out to a lot of guys, and uh, he's retired now, Mike Odell, LAPD SWAT, great guy. Uh, he was in SWAT for a long time, and he promoted up, and he I think he retired as a captain earlier this year. But I reached out to Mike and said, hey, what do y'all do out there? And he goes, well, this is how we do it. Uh, I'll send you everything in email. He sent me this, and not that 
we do it that way, but it was a really a professional way that they had been doing it for a long time out there as far as how they assess. And we, not that we weren't doing the same thing. We just really weren't capturing it and recording it that way. I mean, our guys were doing the exact same thing they were doing. Uh, it was just, it was captured and it was more of a docu. It was documented much better job than what we had been doing. And so I was like, we can do a better job of this. Well, I crafted my first one and, I asked, you know, many people, ran it through Tim multiple times. I talked to Claggett about it because Claggett did a lot of, you know, by the time he's retired and he was searching, or I'm sorry, training around the country and asking him on different things and ran it through, the, you know, I ran it through multiple senior guys that had done a lot of work and uh, they had come up with different ways of looking at it. I just kept working on it and, uh, you know, changing little nuances here and there and kept getting turned down. And I had a deputy chief tell me one time, he goes, why would I want to put something like that on paper and paint ourselves into a corner? And I was like. Well, we do with everything else. Say, I mean, when is the Dallas Police Department never put anything on paper? It was like I was I was stunned by that, and it was the deputy chief that said that. And he's retired, and he, but he was over us for the time. And I was, he was just like, no. He goes, what we have in place in general orders is sufficient. I'm like, it barely discusses it. And there's it's general. It's generally yeah. general. Well, words. yeah. And uh, I was like, but there's nothing really specific. I was like, we can do a lot better job at this and we need to. And so, if something ever comes up and you hate to say when, but it, it's a big city, things happen here. When something bad happens, that's one of the first things we're going to start looking at. How did you plan this? How was it decided to do this tactic versus that? You know, what is your training on that? And so when all that started coming up, People are like, well, I think it's a good idea, but we've never done it here, so why do it? Why we do it? And I just kept working on it, working on it, working on it. And it took, you know, probably the first time that I started it to the time it probably got approved, you know, up the chain, probably took almost 10 years. Yeah, like you said, though, if something goes bad, and well, something's always going to come to the Dallas doorstep. It always has. Yeah. Look, at our, look at our history, okay? Sure. And we got much more coming our way, I'm sure. If something goes wrong, they start looking down the chain of the planning, the preparation, and and uh, and they're going to try to, in some cases, could try to point a finger. Yeah, well, you the don't want to be you don't want to be that one the finger pointing at you. Anytime anything goes wrong, the first thing they do is pull up training records. Mm-hmm. It's the first thing they're going to do, and whether it be the department or attorneys or the or the courts, whatever, they're going to do that. And when you start looking at documentation, it's like, well. We're not documenting how we're doing any of this. You know, we were doing it, but it just wasn't. And believe me, I'm not one to make paperwork for ourselves, but I think it was recognized that we need to do a better job about it. And uh, when now Major Villarreal, when he came back over as a lieutenant, you know, ran it by him again, kind of, he's like, you know what, I think I see what we need to do here. And he really championed the cause and sent it up. And uh, at the time, Major Igo, now Assistant Chief Igo, uh, went with that and goes, hey, we're going to go forward with this and we're going to implement it. And now it is, you know, just a year or so ago, they say we're doing this. And they, of course, as usual, they're going to tweak it a little bit what they want to do, but they implemented it. And I, and I just thought it was something that we needed to do a long time ago. We finally got it done. But anyway, that's what it was. So I took a lot of pride in trying to get that done. Uh, I thought it was the best thing for us. And I just think that at the, at the end of the day, you're trying to make things safer for everybody. That's what I was trying to do. The matrix basically tallies up the different aspects of what's going on with this warrant, and then it determines, does it get run by our patrol guys, our CRT guys, our crime response teams, uh, the gang unit, or does it need to go all the way up to the level of the SWAT team executing right. it? It's a threat assessment, and it's it's a guide to help guide the detectives 
on looking at what's going on because obviously they know long about that location long before we ever do and they go hey this guy is low le- i hate to say that low level because that can mean that doesn't really mean anything but hey there's no expectation of some kind of resistance or whatever you know this is something that can be done on this level because obviously you can't roll a SWAT team every time somebody gets arrested because they obviously can't do that either. But there has to be some kind of line in the sand saying this is where it ends, this is where it's going to be taken to. And we just brought everything collectively together to a to a point in, in much more of it in a, in a you know in a uh, in documenting to saying hey this is how we're going to do it, this is what we're going to do and do that. And I think it I think in a general it probably eased some of their concerns because they're like hey this is what we need to do. As opposed to saying, well, you know, maybe we should do it, maybe we shouldn't. It's much more black and white now. Yeah, it takes the takes the decision decision making yeah, away from the, the people yeah. that are closely involved and says, hey, no, I know you want to do it, but reaches a different level to where it needs to be good. Yeah, absolutely. He will win. Who knows when to fight and when not to fight? Talk about your experiences with the six a.m. warrants and uh, suspects shooting at the team a lot, and then how the decisions went to getting away from earlier late warrants. Well, when I came over again in 2005, we ran warrants all the time, early morning into late at night. And we had, we'll get two units that, that were different times of the day, not like it is now where we're all together. And you, you know, on day shift, you were you know, on days, you worked 6A to 4P and then 1P to 11P on the evenings, and you flip-flopped every month. And so it was nothing for the other unit to be running a warrant at 6 or 7 a.m. while you were not there, or you'd be running one at 9 p.m. while they're – so it, all those different, the variances in the extremes of hours, we did a lot of it back then, or not a lot, but it was it happened quite often. And so when February 2006, I hadn't been here a year yet, Oak Park happened. And uh, it was an early morning warrant for a federal you know, task force thing. And it was just like every other time, there's multiple warrants going on at the same time. And we had been asked to run that one. And as a new guy, you're, you don't have anything to do with it. You're just out training and doing whatever. So you come in and you know, the plans on the board is, and again, something that we have done in Dallas SWAT that I'll say that is much better is our, our attention to detail and the process we do about briefing and planning warrants. It is much better than it was when I first came over. And not to say those guys were doing a bad job. It's just kind of like, we just realized we need, we need to do a better job. It evolved. It evolved. Absolutely. And so that one was not planned. Great. It it had some holes in it and it was missing some critical information that should have been you know, handled and discovered and dealt with on the plan. It wasn't, but that still didn't change necessarily everything would happen. And we, we had, you know, it went bad that day. A lot of officers, you know, um, got hit, you know, got shot. And uh, the emergency action, the immediate action drills, whatever you want to call them from us, did not go right as well. We had some bad things happen. And it was a, no question, it is a, you know, it is a, red letter date in the history of Dallas SWAT is not a good thing, uh, certainly. And it was when you got done with that, you know, and then the senior leadership that was there is like, we got to change things. We, we cannot continue to do this. We got to do things better. You know, uh, hack still limping today because of that. And that was 2006. And, um, we looked at ourselves, you know, which is no, nobody wants to do that, but you look at yourselves like we got to do everything better from now going forward. And, doesn't doesn't help you know those guys that got shot that day but if anything out of it we got better at what we were doing or we started the process of getting better and we're and it's still evolving today trying to get better but it was a bad deal and so that happened 
and then you go that was in 2006 and then you moved to october in 2007 uh, when lieutenant carlton marshall was shot and uh, i was standing you know just arm's length away from him when that happened and um, again there was there was uh, deficiencies in the plan the the way it was implemented uh, not that anybody was not trying to do a good job there was there were some command and control issues that were above any of our, you know, say so, that led to that, and he we came within a whisper of dying. And Dr. Alex Eastman, and Dr. Jeff Metzger, you know, what they did in that driveway, perform an emergency tracheotomy and save that man's life, is just still unbelievable to we, think about what they did. Yeah, we we had Dr. Uh, Metzger's episode air already, and Dr. Eastman's is upcoming, and it, it's phenomenal to hear both perspectives of that. Well, I mean, even you know, for those that don't know, he got shot in the neck at very close range with a a forty five Sig P Sig P two twenty. She's an eighteen year old woman, nineteen year old woman, holding a eight month old baby. Shot him through the window and hit him in the neck, and it clipped his spine. And it, I mean, he was he was just. I mean, I don't can't how bad a shape he was in. He was in. He probably would not have survived this as the SWAT doctors. Were well, there, well, right? they'll tell you that, that the ambulance, if he had, if he if he had been in the ambulance when he got shot, he probably would not have survived because they can't do what those trauma ER surgeons did. And so they, it's absolutely, you know, again, those guys, I mean, to, to do that in the driveway while we're still warning the warrant, those are those are steady hands right there, man. Those guys are unbelievable, and so he's, you know, we kid we kid those guys, but man, flashlights in their mouth, yeah, and, and oh yeah, and hands working you know, in the dark. And they weren't they weren't they weren't officers back then. They weren't armed. They you know they stayed in. You know. And it was an active scene. We, oh know, yeah, no, we were still. still I mean, uh, Josh Hertel and uh, those guys drug Lieutenant Marshall back to them. Tim and I stayed at the window and were confronting him as the entry team was coming into the house. We saw her. She shot him and dropped the gun immediately. And the gun was right inside the window by the headboard of the bed. We couldn't see it. It was just within a foot or so of us. We just couldn't see it the way down the bed because she just shot him and just dropped the gun. So you're confronting him who was going for the gun, but the covers had flipped over the gun and he could feel the 45, his 45 under the covers. He just couldn't grasp it because the covers were over it. She shot him with another 45 and dropped the gun on the by the bed by on the headboard, and, and he didn't know that. And so he was. We were confronting him. He was. And he had shot himself in the leg with an AK the year before, and, and so he was hopping around on one leg trying to find the gun. We're confronting him and her, and the baby screaming, she's screaming, and none of us knew at the time that she's been the one that had shot him. And so after that, it was like, hey, we just had this happen last year on Oak Park, and now we had this on Eleven Ten Hollywoods where that happened. Uh, they're like, we're going to go back and reevaluate running warrants at early in the morning at dark. And uh, whether it's whether it's the darkness, it was just a as a as a practice. We're just not going to do warrants, dynamic, you know, no, not warrants at 6 a.m. anymore when people are probably still in bed. That was what was the decision. Whether it was the right thing or not, that was the decision to be made. And we stopped stopped running them dynamically, you know, no, not now we can go out and do, go out and do surrounding call outs. But that, that's, again, that's a whole other, you know, animal there. So we try to just wait to let them go later in the day so we can run them dynamically so we don't have those issues. But those are the two big things that happen. So you're back to your question about that. That's what it, what came up out of that and, uh, you know, changed, changed the way we do it ever since 2007. Now, at your level as an ASL, have you come across any of the static from the, uh, the federal agencies that like running those 6 a.m. warrants? 
Oh yeah. No, they it's well in the present day 2022 administration, they're not they're they're not allowed to perform those anymore anyway. They they could do it themselves back then. And then they would always ask us to help them out as far as manpower because they always had multiple locations. They can't run dynamic anymore on a federal level. So they're more than happy to come and ask us to do it because they know that we need, you know, certain structures need to be done that way. Yet they want to run them at 6 a.m. And so it's like, okay. Still not decreasing the number of times they get into shootings on these 6 a.m. warrants. Right. However they're doing it. Yeah. So they're not doing it anymore. Yet they still have a high rate of, you know, use of force, deadly force encounters much more than us. So is it, is it the, is it the operators or is it the plan? You know, and so I would suggest to you that it's more of an operational level issue than it is a plan issue. Uh, you can have great plan and still have bad operators, and then maybe, you know, it, you're lucky if it goes down. But you can have a bad plan and great operators can sometimes pull that thing yep. out. So it's a, I, there's no question in my mind. Again, not to sit there and pick on them, but you know, having dealt with them enough to know that sometimes they're they don't know what they're asking. And I think what happens is they come in and go, I'm like, look, if you could do this, you would do it. You need us to do this. We're going to do it the way we think is right. And it's the only way you can do it is to do it the way you think you need to do it, depending on what your capabilities are as a department. I wouldn't want to tell somebody else how to do it because I don't know how they do things. So So Sun Tzu also says, victorious warriors win first and then go to war, while defeated warriors go to war first and then seek to win. Talk about your mentality towards preparation. I mean, both operationally and personally, you're you're one of those dudes that probably has your outfit, your you know your underwear's set up by date, for sure. Uh, your your socks all match and and everything's pretty squared away in your life. I don't know, I have them done by date, but they're lined up, so it's uh... <laughs> ironed, <laughs> starch. Yeah. Well, the, the, well, the new ones you can't starch them. So, yeah, but uh, but those old good yeah, ones, yeah, yeah. And I know people gave us. I, I don't. I don't. I don't care what they think, but you know. <laughs> I, I think that I, I, I think it matters. I th- you know, and, I, and again, like being raised while I was right, you know, uh, yeah, my mom, it was, you know, it's brutal. She's an English major. You talk about living with that, you know, it was, everything's proper, you know, and you will say it correctly and you don't just grammar and all that. And it was like, you know, you're going to be prepared. You know, there wasn't any just waking up and just being this. It was just, and then growing up in, in back to East Texas, like, that equipment will not be ready in the morning unless you prepped it the night before. You know, you have to service that equipment. And that's anybody knows anything about bailers and, you know, and, you know, and brush hogs and all that. It requires a tremendous amount of maintenance and, you know, having to prepare them. And you just can't just put them up at night and jump back on the next day. They're not going to last you long. And so you got to prepare. So for the next day, is prepare the night before. And uh, I think that's a big thing here. And when you're getting called out in the middle of the night, time is money. You don't have time to where, where is this i have seen <laughs> many guys i mean waist deep inside their you know boxes or their trunks trying to find a certain piece of gear they need i'm like man we don't have time you know and so i'm like you're born with inherent attributes you know whether you're tall or strong or fast or you know better shooters than this but they're not going to outwork you you know you got to out hustle people and so i always try to be that guy that you know whatever to have my stuff's ready you know and if you know when we show up you know, you you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna be right there getting dressed, re, you know, ready to go out the door. Can get to where I'm going, grab my gear, and be up there quick. Uh, not that people can't be quicker than you or whatever, but you you got to be streamlined. You got to be efficient. And so when you talk about preparing, 
having your gear laid out, having it ready, you know, making sure your batteries are charged on your radios, having extra batteries. I know people give me grief about that, but I mean, this, let me tell you something, you, you got to have all that ready to go. And how all that money we spend on training you and all this great gear, and you don't have what you need as a battery, and it fools operation. You don't, just little things like that. So I, uh, I think it's those little things that require no great aptitude. It's just effort. And so having your gear ready, you know, being prepared is a big thing. And uh, I have been on, on the receiving end of a lot of things go my way just because you were quick to it. And being prepared, not necessarily just in equipment, but mentally being prepared about having to work this, you know, and you're driving in for the warrant or, you know, we're getting called out in the middle of the night and it's a re- HR and you know you got to get there. It's not just driving there then going, okay, what do I need to do? You're already working through all those intangibles, you know, and all those, you know, possible outcomes while you're getting there. Hey, is this, you know, is it, you see the apartment number on it. You're like, is it upstairs? Is it downstairs? Is there another door to it? You know, where's the windows? What's the approach? Is there cameras there? Is there lighting? You know, do we need to evac the, the common wall people out of there? Which is, you know, we have to do that a lot. So all those things are happening. So when you hit the ground at the scene, you're not going, okay, what am I doing? You're already working through all those and you're paying attention to the radio, hearing what other people are saying or whatever. So when you get there, I'm not at step two or three. I'm already at step number eight or nine and I'm already at number 15 trying to work through that problem. And so when you see that, you're like, okay, I know exactly what to do. But back to my earlier about doing that training, about doing that prep, I know what the idea is, you know, how to solve this problem already. So all you got to do is figure out what the problem is. I already got the file ready to go. Just lay it down there and go. And that's how people win. So this is getting into uh, something that's kind of triggered a memory for me. Um, And I don't know if I've told you, Joe, this story, but there is a police agency in Texas that I think came to one of the first HR schools Matt put on, or maybe it was an advanced SWAT or something, and uh, they really liked the training. And they've been coming back for a lot of the training that we do for the TTPOA, specifically the ones that Matt heads up. And so... They've developed some camaraderie with the Dallas SWAT team a little bit. We recognize them, and we know them by first name and stuff. But Matt has these isms or axioms or sayings, and uh, they were pretty quick to pick up on it, especially after their third or fourth training course with us. So one training course, they all showed up with T-shirts. And I, and I found a picture of the T-shirt, and I'll show this to you. Maybe you can post this up, but I'll read what on the back said. It says, batteries, mechanical offset, White light, handle the room, don't get left in Virginia, Matt Smith. <laughs> so there are all the isms there. But, Matt, if I want you to touch on one, and that's the last one, which is don't get left in Virginia. That's, I got that from the, the book No Easy Day. And if anybody hasn't read that book, Mark Owen, he was a Navy SEAL. And he wrote that book about his firsthand account of being on the uh, Osama bin Laden raid mission. And... Um, I like reading these books, you know, you know, whatever. I enjoy them, you know. And, again, it's not necessarily saying their tactics are ours, but, it's, again, it's the mindset. So you think about this. He's already – they're already Navy SEALs, okay? So they're already accomplished much more than – Tip of the spear. Yeah, but people do. And then you have SEAL Team 6, which is even more exclusive. I mean, they're, you know, and having met all – look, they – any SEALs done more than I ever have, especially the SEAL Team 6 guys. But, anyway, so you have guys that are on SEAL Team 6, and they are looked at amongst their peers as being that elite tip of the tip of the spear. Like, you know, you have the number of the SEALs and you have even a smaller number of those guys. And uh, it's like the unit, the Delta guys, they are SEAL Team 6 and the unit guys are considered by pretty much everybody in the world as the two most elite. And 
you know, and the guys from SEAL Team 6 go to the unit, so the unit probably is even more elite and more prestigious. But anyway, so the book, um, Marco and No Easy Day, they are doing it, and they have, they have rotations about who's up and all that. And so they have, and I don't know what the number of the guys are, and that, that number is their number, but let's just say there's a lot of guys that are in that group. But when this mission came down the pipe and they decided they were going to go look at this, they're in, they're in damn net Virginia as they're training. And uh, so they come in and the command comes in and goes, okay, we're only taking like 24 guys on this mission. This is the mission of all missions for the this generation. So you think about that. You have, they're going to go and go try to take out Osama bin Laden. I mean, just, you know, public enemy number one. And so they start looking at the command, starts looking at guys, and they're like, who are we going to take on this mission? Because they all can't go. And the ones that aren't going can't know what's happening. And the ones that are going to go are going to go train, and the ones that are not going to go are going to get left in Virginia. And that's what he talks about. It's like, And so when you are training, which is where all this comes from, and being able to be a professional and doing your job, is that you're, you're putting all that collateral and all that going forward is like I'm, I'm here i'm a solid dude i'm training i'm doing my job i'm a solid dude i'm an asset i'm doing what's expected to me what's asked of me and i go out there and perform that at a high level regularly where the command and all my guys have confidence in me that's what you gotta be able to do that's i don't care if you're the newest guy or the most senior guy that's what you that's that's the litmus test right there do your people have trust in you so when you calms up and say whatever they're like yep that's what, that's what you need to do. And so you think about how hard that must have been because they're already SEAL Team 6. And they had to go in there and pick out those guys to be that small group to go to Abbottabad, Pakistan, to take him out. And so I can't imagine what the feelings were with that. I'm sure some of them were probably, I wish I could have gone. And I know there's was listening to O'Neill talk about it. He's like, there are some guys that go, hey, I want to be the next time that mission comes up. I want to be on that chopper. I'm going to work better. And so I say, don't we I always tell those guys, hey, don't get left here in Virginia. So basically, don't be the guy that nobody trusts or has confidence in. You know, be that guy. They go, hey, we got to go do this mission. So like, if they came in here today and go, hey, we got we got a a, a, you know, a cell we got to go t- take down. We only can get eight guys, and this is you know breaking it down. We only can take eight SWAT guys up there. Who eight are you going to take? You know, don't get left here in Virginia. So that's where that comes from. So I love it. Yeah. So they made that T-shirt, and boy, I, that, that, boy, I faded some heat. I, I did not know that somebody here knew they were going to be making those shirts and wearing them. So when they rolled in that day, and they all took their tops off, and they, it was a long day. I can't imagine the the felled smile you had oh, just yeah. looking at that. Well, you, you shot your wheels well, off trying to train. Well, I, you know, well, it was hard. I did good because they they weren't with my group first, and so I was able to get kind of in my my world over there. But when they rotated back to us. And having to watch them walk in, just looking at that, it was, it was hard. And then now they have another one out too, so it's version two. But I think electric you know, boogaloo. I appreciate. Yeah. I didn't say it this time, Danny. But I appreciate their effort because hey, it's a daunting task to come up here as a small time team and to come up here and to walk into the lines den and to fade that heat from us, and yet they hear they continuously do it. So they're, they're really good dudes. I well, like those guys. We have guys on our team who are like, oh, what's going on this week? And we're like, oh, we got this going on and this, and then uh, Matt's up in north training. They're teaching this, and the guys will be like, oh, I'm going to go to that to just sit and listen we'll listen to Matt just wear these guys out because uh, there, there's a lot of humor in it too. It's, everyone knows the Matt Smith axioms. Are well, I, iron sharpens iron, right? I mean, yeah. you, you, you're up there, you're doing that to – make them better and possibly save their life. 
Yeah. I mean, you, you people say, oh, he's a hard ass. I've heard that about you. I've heard you're a hard ass trainer, but I believe, and I'm not even, you've never trained me. I, I, I know you actually have in some of our, our uh, in the CRT stuff, Danny, he was part of that. But you're doing that and you're hard ass for a reason to keep me alive. That's how I looked at it. Or there's a reason why those guys made those shirts. Of course. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's, yeah. Well, I think if, if you're a professional, you want to work with other professionals. And so you want to find out really well, really quick who wants to do the job, you know. And uh, that's one good thing about SWAT as a whole. Guys that want to go to training, they want to do really good. But every now and then you'll get somebody that comes in, you know, from my, and they're like, I've got to be here. And it's really – it's hard. You, like, try to be professional, but you – I don't want them to walk out of there and not become better. And so you're like, the only way I know to do that is to be brutally honest with you. Yeah. Because I can tell you, I had Mike Keating. We had guys over here. Even though Keating is – wouldn't necessarily all the training like they were very direct about things not all of them uh but at the same time they would tell you that's that's done don't ever do that again and so that resonates versus well you know i mean tiptoeing around yeah, a serious like, you know, situation yeah because i mean if you didn't make the team you didn't make the team it wasn't like it is you know like a lot of things now is like okay well everybody's gonna get a participation trophy. that's not the way it works so you gotta be direct with them nobody has really escaped matt's wrath either so it, at one point in time you've done something that you wish you didn't do especially right in front of matt and it, there is a, a large amount of joy that you take in watching him just dress somebody else down, and it's not you at that time. Carl, where's, where's your rifle? <laughs> That's a pride. He took life. He took years <laughs> off my life. You know, good dude, but uh, you know, and uh, well, uh, again, I, I you try to leave it. Uh, one thing Todd Wellhouse told me, you know, if you don't know freak, he's a good dude. He said, leave it better than when you than you got here. And I think we've done that to some degree. I think they all have. You know, we've really pushed a lot of good stuff and equipment and all this. That's a huge challenge. It is. I mean, I think everyone who is really good at their job says that to the next guys coming in, and it puts a lot on them. It's like leave it better than, than especially when nostalgia kicks in, and you realize that all those dudes were ten feet tall and mm-hmm. had lasers out of their eyes, and I mean, they were just a different breed than the guys that we have now, and, yeah. and it it's going to continue to evolve. And I think that their lack of technology and their lack of equipment almost made them yes. sharper yeah. and and now that we have more of the equipment and more of the stuff we don't necessarily do all the same things that they did because they had to yeah well i'm a firm believer in software over hardware uh, you can have all the great equipment but if you can't you know you can put a jet in front of me i can't do anything with it you got to know how to do it and those guys even though we have more equipment than they ever had there's no like the night vision everything we have i mean you know, those guys have been gone like 10, 7, plus, almost 8 years. You know, we all the equipment we've got since he left, We he and I have talked about this many times. He's like, that's incredible that you all have all that with the APCs, the drones. We got two brand-new I-Cores last week, which, you know, those are, you know, to have that. You know, when I came over, the robot had didn't even work. The APCs didn't run. We used the vans. We hid in the street on BPs because we didn't have any armor. You know, that's just unfathomable to think about now. We have five down, you know, and so there's always one in the shop for some reason. Keith ran over a fence or something, you know, so we always have one down. <laughs> but, hey, Keith's cry, I love Keith. But anyway, you know, but the, you've got to have that. At the same time, those guys ran three to 400 warrants a year back then. It's just different. And so, like, I will never run as many warrants as they did. But, like, the new generation would never run as much as I did because I was kind of on the tail end of that. My my generation, we caught, you know, two, 300 warrants. I mean, 300, the whole division probably ran. You may run, I mean, I've run 160, you know, something like that a year for many years. They'll never do that many, The whole, all these guys every year. It's just, it's just, it takes more time, more process and all that. They just want nothing. They couldn't do it. It just won't happen that way. So they had so many more reps and they had burnt 
a lot of, you know, training scars down, trying to fit, get past all that. And they're like, I can tell you right now, 100%, that is wrong. That is because we've done it wrong for a long time. Don't ever do it that way again. Or they're like, look, and it's the basic CQB stuff that that was taught years ago still works today. So Real quick, CQB, tell the listener what that is. Close quarters battle. Thank so you. That's yeah, another acronym. Yep, we get we use a lot of them. Yeah. Uh, Sir will be emailing me asking what that is. Hey, real quick, I have I have a question uh, on the training aspect. So you have trained so many different SWAT operators within the city, within smaller agencies across the country. You've seen SWAT operators evolve with their talents that are given to them, and you've also showed them things that they could tailor their performance to what skill set they have you've watched that evolution of, a, of an individual what is your opinion on seeing an operator devolve over time what goes into that when it was it job complacency could it be entitlement what do you see uh the biggest factor when it comes to that people devolving in, in their uh SWAT career i think you could look at a mini contributing factors to that and i think it's in any job As a matter of fact when you mm-hmm. asked that i wrote it down I said, you know any any business is, is commonplace in any business to have you know a letdown somewhere or you know like you said you know de-evolve or you know to taper off i think you know to some degree they think it's just just human nature which is wrong because we we can't allow that here if you know, if you're if you sell insurance for a living, you don't write as many as you did a few years ago. Is it really going to change your you know your your safety in your life? You, you know? may not have somebody shot and throat on the side of a house. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so you, over here, you have to recognize that whatever that line in the sand is, when you get to it, you got to be honest with yourself and say, "Hey, that's I'm I'm there. There's no shame in that." And everybody has a different line. You know, there. are some people have who've done this job, you know, Tim, you know, and those guys are at a high level. You know, when he left, he was still doing it at a high level for over 20 years. That is not easy. I've been doing it over 17, man. It is work. And it's an you. outlier, too. Well, yeah, just a, yeah. It's a department. It's a work, but yeah. you've got to be committed. Like, you got to wake up, you know, pretty much every four out of five days a week and go, hey, I'm in this thing. And you got to go to work. And whether the weather's bad or it's really hot, you know, or the call out comes, you're just like, you know, you don't, have, you can't sit there and go, ah, nah, I'm just, no, it didn't work that way. Yeah, there's really not an option to, to stay in bed when the phone goes no, off. No, you got to go. And, and even, and not that it was before, but even now when we're basically all on call all the time because we're so small and it's just so much, you know, it's just so involved with the equipment and everything that we need. It, you know, rarely do you not, everybody get called on everything. And so just to label one thing to say, this is what happens, there's a, there's a multitude of things. It could be personal where, you know, the, the, their personal life could be doing this. It could be mm-hmm. physical. It could be a thing where, hey, this guy's made a lot of money on the side doing whatever else. He's like, hey, I just may be starting to shut down. Hey, that's fine. You know, there's no shame in that. Everybody's got to have their own way. I, I have seen young people come in, young guys, and not just you know with Dallas Watt from other agencies, and they are stunned by everything that goes into this job. They think we all get to work out, you know, and – look cool and drive all the gear and shoot and all that. Take and all the selfies with the yeah. equipment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I'll do all that. And though that's there, man, that is, that is, that's just a wrapping on the, pa- it is so, 
much past that. And I don't want to sound whatever, but it's it's absolutely what it is. And so the wrapping on the pad, that's the most East Texas thing you've said yeah, today. Well, you know, I had to get it in there. <laughs> yeah, you know? shoehorn it in. Yeah, yeah. yeah I got to get it in there. So, but you have to recognize that, man, this thing is, it is, it is dimensional. It is very volatile. It's like a rabbit hole almost when you go down it and you got to be committed to stay with it because when you leave the department, this thing just keeps trucking, right? They don't ever stop. Ball you know? bounces. Yeah, you know? and it's the same thing with us. And, look, there was some guys that were – they were giants on Dallas Watt when I came over. Those were the dudes. When I came over, like, you're like, everything runs through them. They are. What the are guy. some of those folks' names? Give them a shout-out. Well, Tim, mm-hmm. no doubt. Tim Houston, you know, uh, as far as in our side, yeah, Bodie Sarton, who was another ASL over there with us. Todd Wellhouse was there for many years. Chuck Del Tufo, you know, those guys. And then you had – obviously you had – you know, Steve Claggett, Steve Salaya, you had um, Robert Cocker, those guys in the A unit. They were they were the big dogs. They were the senior guys that ever they were those pillars of the of, of our division that they knew what was going on. Everybody went through them for everything. And it, it's, it's supposed to be that. Those are your senior guys. And all of them are gone. And you know what? This thing and that's nothing against them. This thing does not stop moving. And when Danny and I are gone, this thing will keep on rolling. It's back to what he mentioned in earlier. It's like you want to leave it better. You want to try to put in place things that when you do leave, and I can tell you right now, you know, I'm a perfect example of that as far as I hear myself all the time saying things that those guys said, you know, especially with Tim. And he he's like, you've got to learn the fundamentals. And one of the things that Paul House says, and I think it's a great quote, is the definition of high speed is being able to perform the basics on demand. And that is very, very true. And Tim didn't really say it in those words, but that's what he said all the time. He's like, you're no good to me or to us. If you can go out there and shoot 100 by 38, whatever, X count, but I can't trust you not to go the wrong way or to do something dumb or in order to yell out going up a set of stairs and confronting people and scaring everybody in there and tipping everything off. Like, it's a thinking man's game. And so when we talk about, you know, people losing that, you have to re- – in order to lose it, you had to have had it. And so I don't think some people ever really get that, to yeah. be honest with you. And I think that's – and that's in every division, every department, not just Dallas. Mm-hmm. You have people that carry that division that do a great job and make things happen in wherever they are, and you have people that are just kind of there. And so I see that with a lot. A problem with a lot of the smaller agencies, and it's not their fault, they just have lack of experience and and just examples of what learn to do. And you try to set that standard and try to be a benchmark for them to say, it's not just me, but just Dallas, look, these are the minimum things you need to work on. I have many guys get done with these conference or these classes that we do, or even from the conference, and they email me. Could you send me the lesson plan? Could you send me eight things you think we need to work on on this? And you know, and and I appreciate it because they care. A lot of guys just come in here like, "Hey, I'm out of here. Here's Check my the box. Take the box. I, I did my my critique and I'm gone because I wanted to get they wanted to get their hours of T cold. And look, you're not going to be able to change them. The guys that you want to help are the ones that are. They're, they're looking for does that make sense yeah if you got if you're training 10 people and two people reach out pull you to the side at the end of class or in between breaks and want to talk to you that that's, that's pretty that's good. worth it yeah that's absolutely. worth it right there yeah there's no question because they actually give a shit yeah. and they want to be better and they want to make everybody around them better yeah you just want you just want to be that guy that can help out no question speaking of which being able to help out um back to sun Tzu, he said opportunities multiply as they are seized now, you've got experience in just about every aspect of SWAT. You've trained in just about every specialty we have. Um, number one, how did that happen? And number two, what was your favorite part of that and why? Well, that's a great question. When I came over, thank you. we were specialized in the sense that you had 
the negotiators were grouped together in their own squad. The, the snipers were grouped together in their own squad. Then you had the entry teams that were their own squad. And they just used – you were kind of like a hired gun in a sense. Like they needed you for personnel. You would go with them. But on a call-out, that was your assignment. It wasn't who's primary, who was up. It was like if you were a sniper, you were – that's what you deployed at if it was needed. And I came over as a sniper, and that was the way it was. So on the vast majority of call-outs early on in my career, you deployed as a sniper. And so – you do that. I, I did that for, you know, for many years. Became a gas and less lethal guy because when I when they realigned us into where every cell or every uh, squad is now inherent, has all your specialties inside it, um, became a gas and less lethal guy. I did that for many years. And I was about the, about the busiest guy in the department, you know, was a gas guy, on a, on a, especially on a call out, like a BP. Um, been a ballistic breacher, shot, a shotgun breaching. You know, I've done that. I've, I've had that for years. Uh, when we first went with the hat team, the high angle team for the repels, when we first got the first repel bags. I did that for years because uh, I enjoyed it. I thought it was fun and cool, and you wanted to learn something you'd never done before. I mean, there's something I knew how to tie up horses and do things like that, but I had never done anything like that. So learning the knots and knowing how to tie off and do things like that—that that was it was a struggle trying to learn all those knots and everything. But I liked it because I heights don't really can bother me that bad. I, I'm comfortable with them, so it was it was gun it was fun i enjoyed it um the um the explosive breaching uh, i wanted to go to the schools so i could become better understanding what the guys were saying on you know, when we we're getting ready to prep something i have never gone up and set a charge on a live op and i don't do that i could you know yeah i guess technically if i went through and kind of refresh myself but there's a lot of guys that were doing that and they're already ahead of me and i was like you know what those guys do a great job I don't want to upset that. I just want – I went through the school. I went through CT school in Garland. I went through Chris Cherry school with us because I wanted to know what the information was. So when any of these guys comes up and go, this is what we got, I have a good expectation of what it is, and I helped me plan the warrant or the operation better or have a better expectation of what's going to happen when we, when this thing goes off. So I did that just so I could – be better at, what, at my job it wasn't that i was going to start carrying you know and being an explosive breacher so i've done all those different specialties i still have a shotgun you know a ballistic breaching shotgun i used it on that deal we did with the big studio a couple months ago right yep on one of those so it, it i don't want to be a jack of all trades master nothing but it helps to have a good foundation based in good sound tactics and those different specialties so when you are up trying to come up with the plan you know you've done it you know what a what a 40 millimeter can do you know what a ballistic breach can do you know what the snipers are capable of doing like hey those guys can get over there and probably give us good overwatch you know because i've done that job and so i just i think that really helps me as a whole understand the whole operation as just moving fluid and uh I just just think she makes you just being able to not just be so locked in on one thing that you're doing you're able to over encompass the whole thing better and just make you more efficient if that makes sense so what's your favorite my favorite specialty yeah what, do you, what did you like doing the most i enjoyed them all uh, nope pick I, one that's, that's a good one i'm not really sure i've had a favorite one they all I, i'll take the zoo rifle well the zoo rifle 100 percent. Yeah, yeah the zoo rifle is <laughs> well i can tell you he's just be, sitting here holding it right now yeah, well, talking. <laughs> i can i'm gonna thank claggett for that later you know, he was, but i can tell you this being a sniper early on you learn fundamentals of marksmanship and that was great and just learning how to become a better shooter not just pulling the trigger you know and calling with your entry gun but 
being a sniper and learning fundamentals and being a better shooter with that was a big thing. And then when we go out on operations, you know, being I still had the zoo gun, you know, at the same time. Uh, I don't know if I had a favorite. Just uh, I don't know. I think all of them had their own place. Uh, the forty millimeter was fun for a long time. Do you know all that? Uh, but I've had the blue, I've had the shotgun for as longer than anything. So I guess I'll just say ballistic breaching. Just because it was there the longest. Just because it's been there the longest. Okay, yeah, yeah no, yeah, makes perfect sense. Um, treat your men as you would your own beloved sons, and they will follow you into the deepest valley. Uh, discuss your role of being the ASL and and selecting personnel, and and kind of get into why you choose the people that you choose. Well, as we uh, talked about earlier, like it's a big responsibility. It's not just an element number or you know the, the letters behind your name. Uh, you know, too much is to whom much is given, much is expected, and so they give you if you if you I don't say give it, you earn it. I think if you get that job because you've earned it or somebody believes that you do. Uh, when you're in that role, you have to recognize that um, at, at, at any moment the operation could come down just to you. You got to be willing to accept that. And that was just the other day on Market Center, the one we had up off of 35. Uh, that thing happened quick, and there was just a few of us up there. And you got And I wasn't the only one up there, and people, and lots of people were there saying the exact same thing I was thinking. So it wasn't like I was the only one who thought it. But you got to recognize that you may be that guy up there. And so you have to understand that that for, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big responsibility. Uh, I don't take it lightly. And uh, I had a great one to learn from in Tim. You know, I, you know, and – do I do everything exactly the same? No, you don't. You don't. You don't. You take what your mentors with leadership shows you how to do it, and you apply it the way you think it should be done. But no question, my game is patterned after his. I learned a lot from so many other different guys that you just pick and choose little things. I think that the responsibility to – not that you're going to have all the answers right away, but you know how to get there really quick. I think that's the big part about being the ASL because you have experience. You have that – you know, Tom Brady is not one of the greatest quarterbacks because of his great arm, being able to run around and do all that. Because why? He can read defenses, and he can. He may not be doing too good this year, but as a whole, he's he's done it really well because he has experience. He knows there's not a defense they're going to throw at him that he can't figure out. I think this is kind of the same thing here. You know how to get to those questions or those answers really quick. Um, as being part of, as far as selection, I think anybody that's in a position to try to help select personnel for you. You should be looking at who who do you believe to be the right person. And there's a, there's a saying that the unit guys had. They said, we don't pick the best person. We pick the right person. I think that's – people say, oh, what's the, what's the difference there or what is that? I think it's a great quote. When, you, when you're in that – when you're somewhere in the business of selecting personnel, I think you get that. Because if you're looking at something that's on a piece of paper, it's very, you know, you know – you're just like, well, what is his PT? What is his shooting? What are his measurables? And and, and, I, and I use this analogy. Look at the NFL draft. You have guys who've been playing football their whole life, you know, in college at a high level, and the NFL spends a exorbitant amount of money evaluating these guys. And yet, you look at the average of the first round draft picks. About four or five years, most of them are gone. You know, there's very few of them last a whole long time. And that is probably. I challenge you to find somebody that's more scrutinized than a first-round draft pick for the NFL. So they have a lot more scrutiny about them. They look at those you know, measurables, their height, weight, bench press, 40-time, vertical, and all that. And though we look at some of those things, too, on the PT test, uh, it's between the ears is what matters. I look here. I And I've said this many times when, I'm, when we're evaluating guys to come over here. I look at, is the PT test a struggle for them? 
And if they're not struggling, that's really about, I really don't really worry about it too much more. As long as he's just, you know, just where you're like, man, every six months that dude's going to have trouble. You can't worry about that. But as long as you can get him over here and get him in shape, I, I'm like, hey, I, I'm not, you know, don't worry about it. As long as it's, no, that's within reason. They're, are they just barely make, you know, so you have to look at those kind of things. I look at between their ears and how, when they're walking in between, if somebody drops something, do they pick it up for them or do they help them out? Or are they so self-centered where, like, I will let you fail just so I don't look, so I can look better or things like that. And those are the things that I'm looking at. Not just me. Look, not just me. A lot of people look at that. But those are the kinds of things I'm looking at. And then, and these guys know this, I start calling around, like, who knows that dude that works with him? And they're like, Joe knows him. He works South Central Deep Nights. I'm like, find somebody in that detail or on that watch that knows that you trust that has an evaluation of the guy. And not that you take that for 100%, but you're just building that folder up on that guy and you're looking at him and you're just taking it in. And you put, I think if you put effort into it, you're looking at those guys and you've got like, I need somebody that's going to come over here that understands that, hey, you have no say-so. you got to learn how to do this job. We will take great care of you. We will teach you stuff that nobody else will. But you got to realize there's a process. And uh, Yeah, I, th- I think everyone on the team knows, and we've seen it, how you've picked people for your squad over the years, is, and you just said it. You're not necessarily picking the best person. You're picking the right person. And uh, you might have someone who's the fastest, shoots the best, actually almost did the best in the tryout with everything else that in the school that we put them through, but you're looking for something that is the best fit and mold for the type of person you're looking for in your squad. It may even be a specific role on your squad. And I think we've all recognized that over the years that that's, that's how you pick people and it ends up being, uh, ends up working out very well for you and your squad. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. It's, it's, it's a lot of effort that I put into that, you know, and again, not miss me. A lot of people do. And I, and it's not just, you know, going over. I talk to a lot of people, you know, and uh, bounce ideas off of them. And, uh, but, you know, the last guy since, you know, since being the ASL and having a say-so in that, because before that you didn't. You just you just sat there and go, okay, that's who we're taking. You have to be a talent scout. Well, basically. yeah, you do. Yeah, but at the same time, you it, it's a talent scout, but you got to have just what Danny's talking about. you got to have those inner workings about what you're looking for and what you need. Mm-hmm. And, and From the outside looking in, oh, it's almost like you're trying to pick a new family member. Yeah. Okay. And that's that's really what it turns into. I mean, we're not as big as we once were in yeah, Dallas. You've got absolutely. nine guys with you if you're full. Yeah. You know, but you're but, never full. Yeah. But you spend at least forty hours a week with that group. Yeah. You know, and upwards of uh, you eat more meals and spend more time with your eyes closed with the guys than you do your own family. No yeah. question. And yeah. and that that's difficult to explain to the command staff when you're wanting somebody that you personally observed but all they see is the numbers on the paper. Yeah. And so you're saying, no, I, this is the guy that fits in with, with the group that I already have. This is this is what's going to make this thing work well. Yeah. And I don't know if they don't really get you in those conversations too much. That's usually something a sergeant has to try to explain. Um, but it, it's it's huge. You know, it, it's very important. You Like you said, you'll have the guys that just kill everything else, but they're about themselves. Yeah. Or or they just don't grasp the concepts of, of what we're trying to accomplish. And they're airheads. Yeah. Get that too sometimes. Well, selection is a never-ending process. You know, that's another great quote, and I think it's very true. And again, you just look at the NFL. You guys who they've been playing that game their whole life for the most part, right? I mean, they've played thousands and thousands of hours of doing football training, and they're being scrutinized so much. We're taking guys who have may have never ever done anything other than. I mean, there are people that hire on Dallas Police Department. Never fired a gun until the till the academy. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it is not like you're, you know, 
Now, I didn't grow up. I grew up in East Texas with a family that we lived on a ranch, you know, out in a, you know, with land, and my parents did real estate. I mean, I didn't have any kind of, you know, prior training or knowledge or anything like this coming over. So I had to learn how to do this job. I didn't have, I didn't walk in the Dallas Police Department knowing anything about any of this. So I had to learn it. So I'm an example. It, it can be done. Now, if you can do it, get, if you can get something out ahead of time, you have, you know, former military guys that come through there. Now, just because you were prior military does not necessarily mean great success over there. We've had it both ways. We've had or guys, as an officer in general. Well, yeah, an officer in general. But we had guys come over there to a prior military, and it just they just slide right in very seamlessly. They realize this is a different animal. And they do a great job, and it never a problem. And then you have some people who it is a struggle from the day they get there, and some of them ultimately until the time they leave, they they cannot cross reference some things. They just cannot do it, and not say anything against them, but it the their prior military experience sometimes is you know a negative with that individual. Yeah, and uh, so I don't look at it as, you know, hey, this person is because of the military. The last two guys we just took from my squad, both of them are prior military. One's still in the reserves. But it, the ones before that never were. And so, yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm proud of the the six picks that have been made since I've been there. I, those guys are really good dudes. They all work hard. And if I call them right now and go, hey, this is what we're going to be doing, I have no doubt they would just roll right in there and go. And it's not just those guys. The other guys in my squad, too, do a really good job. Uh, but, you know, you – Again, that's part of that, you know, legacy or whatever you want to call it that you're leaving behind. You want to make things better. Is that you want to put people in a good position? So when you're either you're not there, or you're on vacation and you're out, or you're you know, or you're when you're eventually gone, they can just step right in and take over that role. You know, and I think that's what a lot of what Tim did with us is he made sure that hey, you got to be able to know how to do this because eventually either I'm not going to be here today or I'm going to be gone eventually. You got to know how to do it, and so it matters. So you've picked six. Since you've been the ASL, yes, that's a very large portion of. Is that include your sergeant? Well, there's that seven now. Well, yeah, we we evaluate them in the school. We didn't have anything to do with picking him. I'm sorry, we didn't have anything to do with picking him. But uh, no offense. Yeah, but yeah. Well, you know, I represent one of nine. You know, Danny's one of nine in his squad, and so there's nine. So there's eight other people, and I have two carryovers that you know the Tim picked, and then everybody else is promoted or left it, you know, left, and so we just replaced them. And it takes time, you know, and the two newest guys, one came over in April and one came in June. And so they're just now really – but they're already participating in operations and doing a good job, but you know, they're still new. So now That's that's a huge undertaking, too, to, to basically rebuild your entire squad over the course of eight years or six years. I mean, yeah. I, I basically went through the same thing. I showed up and mine was the most senior squad, and I was very grateful for that. But with that comes guys just dropping off as they as they go, you know. Very and quickly became the the oldest squad to the, the youngest. youngest. Yeah. You no, know, and, and that I I wish it would have gone a little bit differently. I wish that some of the guys didn't leave for the reasons they had to leave. Yeah. Um but building that was also a lot of fun for me. You know, it was it was, it was a challenge to to mesh personalities and skill sets and, and get the right people that, that don't hate each other all the yeah. time. And you know sometimes we mess that up, and but yep. I mean I almost flipped that entire squad, and you now you're in the same boat. So yeah. it's well, I think you know in, in the group the group that was there when 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 he left, and you know and I had you know I have two that are carryovers from that, and both of them are very capable of doing this job. I mean it wasn't like you know they were picked. You're like oh no no. I mean they're very capable of doing what they need to do, and so and you need those guys to stick around so they can help you train no question, up the new ones. There's no question because you cannot do it all by yourself. Look, you know you can put in your effort you can do a lot of things but you've got to 
you know, you can't do it all by yourself. Like a head coach can't do it, you know, or the offensive coordinator can't do it all by himself. You've got those position coaches, you know, those senior guys. And every great team has those senior guys, even not necessarily being the ASL, that really, you know, carried the mail a lot of days just doing things because you may be at a drive-by or a meeting or you may be, you know, helping with a class somewhere. And those guys are ones out trying to show those guys. And I think that goes back to those those fundamentals that those, those senior guys, those two, my two most senior guys now, you know, they are very strong in their fundamentals as far as like, you know, how to handle the door, how to do all process that first room, handle the room you're coming into. They're very good at that. And so like if I was gone for a week and you sent the two new guys to go with them to learn how to do this, those two guys could do it without it, wouldn't even think twice about it. So I'm, I'm fortunate in that regard. All right, back to our book. It says in the midst of chaos, there is also opportunity. Now, your first year here with SWAT, you experienced quite a bit of chaos. Um, kind of walk us through your, your roles of, of what you were doing that day with Oak Park, uh, your takeaways, and, and do you feel like that changed you? Well, it changes you no matter, and good, bad, and indifferent, you learn, again, it's just like when you're in patrol, and then the first time you roll up on a, a guy's been shot, or you know, or you hear shots being fired, it, it becomes real. Now, not that you didn't know it was already there, but it becomes real for you at that very moment. And I remember my very first, you know, foot chase, my very first car chase, you know, first time being shot at. You, that resonates with you, and you recognize whether you did anything right or wrong, that you just have to, it's, it's just something you, like, all right, timestamp that, get better, move on, figure that, that out. And so um, with us, or for me, you know, Oak Park happened. I hadn't even been on a year yet, you know, or as far as in SWAT. And a lot of things went wrong. Uh, a couple of things ended up working out, not working out, but great operators did great things that day and solved problems, which is what you want to do. And you realize really quick, like, I want to be on that camp, not in that camp. And you, and I don't care where you go in the world, you, within the first, you know, a couple of weeks, you kind of realize that. Not that you didn't know that already, but on that, when it's when it's real and it's as real as it gets and people are getting shot and there's there's chaos there's that calm in the storm like hey go get this we're gonna do this you know abc one two three and you're like that's the dude you want to you know one he'll keep you keep you alive and keep you safe and you know hopefully you'll pick up a few things and so uh on uh, oak park you know one of the things that didn't go right it was the uh, drivers were not sure where we were going well you know, the military has the 160th, the special operations guy, and those are the finest helicopter pilots in the world. They get you exactly where they're going, and those guys will tell you. They'll fall asleep on the bird, and they'll wake them up one minute out and say, hey, we're about to hit, we're about to hit the deck. They have no doubt about where they're going because they have the best. And so with us, we have gr- we've had great people down there, but if they don't know where they're going, and it wasn't their fault. It was, it was, it was the command's fault at the time that didn't set them up for success. So we, got, we were delayed coming in on the seaside, and uh, we're so we're already behind uh, the Alpha side team of where we're trying to hit the house near the same point. So we're already behind. We were just getting off the APC Tywell house tonight to go do a breach and hold on the seaside door that faces the Bravo side. So for y'all that don't understand that, that door doesn't look out in the backyard. It faces towards the side of the house. It's just on the back side. And the shots are being fired. It's about the time my foot hits the ground coming off the APC. You can hear the shots. So we're not even at the door. So we didn't even get to the door. So you're like, shots fired, don't know where they're coming from. You know, your immediate action drill is to do what? Fall back to the APC. That's what, that's what we're supposed to be doing. And where I was is just the way the APC was. I was in front of these windows, and so I'm just kind of just looking into there. You can't tell where it was. Had we been on time, the door we breached 
when it swung open, we'd been looking right at the couch where the, the suspect that was shooting through the front door was laying. We were eight feet from him had we been on time. So when you go back and look at, and again, it's not the, the APC driver's fault. It's not his fault. It was our fault as a, as a division that failed. Had we had been on time, just on time, when that door came open, we may have prevented him from shooting or at least minimized the amount of rounds that he fired because we've been looking right at him. And so when you recognize early on that those those few seconds can matter a huge amount downrange, you know, that ripple effect, stone going in the water and that ripple getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And that very, very much illustrated to me right then that, man, we could have solved that problem right then, maybe even prevented anybody from being shot. Uh, or minimize the amount of shots that had it, reduced them. And you may not have had what happened to Dale, you know, who's limping still to this day because of that. And so when, not that you had anything to do with that, I didn't on that particular operation, you recognize that, man, we've got to do this better. And I'll give Todd Wellhouse credit. We were sitting there and the whole thing, and what people don't understand is in the middle of that deal, we had another call out. And so the ones that didn't get involved in the shooting, which was just a few of them, they like, y'all stay. The rest of us had to go to that call out, go solve that one, and then come back to that one for, for PES and SIU and everything because there was – it was just well, how crazy it was. And so I, when I came back, you had all these SWAT guys, all these mags, unloading all these – there was just ammo everywhere because you had like 30-something like, like guys. There was ammo everywhere because nobody wearing cameras for that like, kind of thing. And you only had just a few guys shoot. And they had, you're talking about they had to count the rounds. They had to count the rounds because the yeah. shooting, yeah. For so, documentation. And yeah. then we come back, they go, where have y'all been? Because they didn't know we had left. Like, we just went to the other call out. Like, well, y'all get over here and get in line and do the same thing. So that took forever. And uh, so we were doing the round counts and all that. And you recognized, because you didn't know how many people had been shot. We just knew we had several people had been shot. You know, Dale was bad. We didn't know what had happened at the time. And uh, we saw some chaos from some of the people there. And you saw a few guys steady the ship and go, this is what we're going to do. You know, shut up, be quiet, do this, you do that, you come with me, you do this, whatever. And so we, uh, when they started pulling them out on the Delta side, Claggett and Emberlin had port and covered a Delta side window and started throwing, Emberlin was throwing gas in. Well, they started coming out the window on the Delta side, just some of the people inside, ended up being all of them, we didn't know at the time. And so they yelled at us from the seaside to come to them to help them in. So we had to, we had to break down a, a, a wooden fence to get to them and to evac those people out to our APC on the seaside. And there's still all stuff, chatter going on. You're just you're just trying to stay out of the way as a new guy and just do whatever you're told. And uh, Claggett walks up and says, go with him at the window and y'all do that. And he walks around to the alpha side, starts talking to whoever's left on the entry team. And he comes back around after they'd already gassed it, and he says, uh, y'all come with us. So Edmund Chaka, Amberlynn, and I are there. They've already moved the suspects out of that house to the seaside. And they come around, and you can see body armor, but no no SWAT guys because they had taken – Dumped it. Yeah, dumped it. Yeah, Dolfo and Dale, they had dumped all their gear on the ground and evac them out. And you, don't, and you don't know who it is. You're just like – you're like, damn, this is – what in the hell is going on? You just don't know. And you don't say anything. You're just trying to stay out of the way and do what you're told. And uh, we had just gotten those the small APCs. I hadn't been there a year yet. We only had them for a few months. And Sergeant Newton had dropped off the Alpha side team. They had gone through the gate and gone to the front door. So when they got shots fired, he drove through the fence. That was the first time we'd ever done that. I mean, I don't, I don't think I even knew we could do that. So he just drove that APC. Yeah, Keith will definitely tell you we definitely can do that. Yeah, we can definitely just do can't it. back out. Yeah, it, yeah. Well, can't. <laughs> yeah. And so he drives in and puts the APC between 
the downed officers in the house. And that was Sergeant Newton, man. He did a great job on that one. He did. I mean, nobody knew we could do that. So there's the APC in the yard, and you go around, and uh, Claggett says, you're going with us. Grab a 517 for the attic. I'm not a gas guy at the time. I'm new. I'm like, what's a 517? A 517 is a, uh, uh, it is a gas canister that puts out uh, chemical agents, you know, tear gas. We call them, and at the time, that was the model number the Safari Land had it for him was a 517. That's what we called them, 517s. And so he says, get a 517, come with me. I said, all right. And so I, I go to the APC, and I see a gas guy there. And I'm like, where's your, where's your guy? I need a 517. He's like, it's in my bag. Go get it. And uh, he was kind of discombobulated about what we're trying to do. I'm like, well, give me the gas. I'm like, I'm about to get yelled at by this guy because you're not doing what you need to do. And I'm like, don't get me yelled at. Go get your – and he's like – I don't ha- I don't have it or whatever. He's all messed up, and so Sergeant Newton he says I'll get it. And he puts the puts the APC in park, and he crawls over because back then there was no magazine for the explosive like there is now. So he just walked between the seats, and he lifts up the seat, and he goes here, young man. He gives me he always says young gives me the five seventeen. He says here, and so I go up and Clag is like, hey, you're gonna go. And Tim's already coming up with the plane. He's like, hey, we're gonna go in there. We gotta clear this thing. Um, Hold on the attic until we get everything cleared, which is the normal you know mode of operation, until we get ready. It's like, okay. And uh, Steve's like, just hang on to that. So we go in there, start clearing the house, and we do all that kind of stuff. And then I handed the 517 to, uh, I think it was Randy Lancaster I handed it to, and he threw it up in the attic. Of course, it was clear. They'd all come out. And you're looking around, and you're seeing just equipment everywhere, people everywhere. And uh, they're like... So where were you beginning? I was like, well, I started on the seaside, and then I got called down the Delta side to move these people out of the house to take them back to the APC. And then I got told to come to this corner to hold this window. And then I got told from the window to come to the APC to get gas, and I got told to bring the gas inside the house. And then I got told to go clear some rooms inside the house. And they're like, and the detective was trying to keep up with it. goes, put so, it on the board for me. Yeah, and so, well, it was just, you know, and he was just as confused as I think everybody was because – it it was not planned for me to do all that, but it was just I just I guess I wasn't doing anything and somebody just says, You're not busy, come do something and I just kept getting tasked with all these little things, end up being, you know, like that number four going in the front door from the front side. Didn't even go in the seat side, we didn't even open that door till later. And it was very clear that something had gone wrong, we didn't know what and to what degree people were shot and it was you know, very involved obviously. And uh, it wasn't until later till we found out exactly what happened. And talk about what you talked about earlier with the early morning warrant. It was like, well, you know, did they not? Did they not? Well, what happened was we were late, and they had already gotten the word from another location that had been hit by the feds that they were that they got hit. So they were kind of on edge and were somewhat expecting, you know, you know, maybe for us to show up. So they were ready for us in a sense. So that's what happened on that one. We've covered a lot so far. Um, but you've been involved in most of the major incidents for almost two decades now. Yeah. Is there one in particular you want to really dive into? Well, there's you have the uh, the guy that tried to you know shoot or he did shoot up at headquarters and try to put out the explosive devices outside of headquarters, which was uh, June of 2015. That was obviously a very big deal. Um, you know, in a sense, that was it was it was monumental in the sense that, of course, it garnered you know worldwide attention for what he had done and then uh what our uh answer to that was you know that was keith Reig shooting him with a 50 cal and it's the first and i think the only time still that american policing has ever used it on a to shoot a suspect and he was in an armored car for people that don't know what happened there he's, he had bought an armored vehicle on ebay i believe 
and had shot at us or shot at the headquarters building late one night on a Friday night and set up improvised explosive devices and was calling him in with his phone and making them go off and he destroyed cars in the parking lot. It's a crazy deal. And how nobody else was hurt is still just an absolute miracle of God to have nothing like that happen. And that was a big deal. And you're thinking, man, that might be one, at that point, probably the biggest thing that ever happened, maybe in the history of Dallas Watt. And then you go 13 months later, July 7th, 2016. And where that thing started at headquarters is right down the road from where this thing started, just a little bit further north into downtown. And then you have, you know, the cowardly attack on the officers on the protest. And, um, you know, how that all started. And then how it, you know, progressed into what happened. And then the, and what we did as far as, you know, going in there, having um, multiple people engage him on the street, multiple people of our guys engaging him inside the building, him shooting back at them, you know, and uh, you know that's real. Uh, and Danny was on one side of the building or the hallway. I had come in the other. And y'all were just – just a stone's throw ahead of us, the way, way it all shook out. I didn't know y'all were in there. I don't think y'all knew that we'd come in, the doors that we'd come in. And when I'm getting out of the truck and putting on my gear, I hear the last shots coming out of that window, and that's when he was shooting Mike Smith. I could hear that. Didn't know at the time what was happening, but I still kind of hear that today, you know, in my mind about how that was going. I didn't know what was happening. Yeah, we were in the hallway and actually thought he was shooting kids inside. So okay, yeah. The last shots on Mike Smith we heard. Yeah, because you could see just a little bit of a flight. And you, just, you know, and the way it echoed, I don't think people realize how much that was involved down there with the echo of the rifle in the buildings. It was so hard. You had a general idea, but to say what he was doing, putting all my gear and running in that building, there was four of us. And Baines, who was ended up with y'all, was with me when we weren't in the building. And the um, one of the officers there is, is just basically pointing up the stairs. He really didn't say much. He was just probably just disbelief what was going on. As we go up that stairway, we see the blood, and we knew somebody had already tagged him from on the street, but we didn't know exactly who, didn't know, whatever. So we just started following the blood trail like a like you would a wounded animal. And we got to the second deck, and I ran up to the third to see it had the blood gone all the way up, and it didn't. So I'm like, hey, he's on that floor. Let's go. And they all pushed through the door. So I was the fourth one coming through that door. There was four of us. And uh, Baines went left, ended up over there with y'all. And I went right. And I saw where he had shot through the glass and reached through there and pulled the door open from the inside where his blood was. And so I knew I was on his trail. Didn't know where everybody else was. And just by the time we did that was y'all's first volley with him. And I get into that, that room and you can just see the blood. And now I'm getting closer and I can tell I'm fairly close. And my thought was, is that Wherever he is now with y'all, he knows he can go back the way he came because y'all had probably cut him off. I didn't know it was y'all or who it was. And so I just kind of stood there and waited at the end of that hallway for a second. I said, he's going to come out of that room and come right back towards us, and that'll be it. We can solve it right now. And he stayed in that room and never came back out, which is where it ended up being. Ryan Scott came running down telling us where he was, which was we were actually standing right outside the wall where he was. We didn't know it at the time. And we were coming up with some hasty plans about what to do, what not to do. And after after a while, and I'm still jealous of Marshall Milligan coming up with it first. He's like, won't we just drive the robot down there and blow him up? And I was like, why did I not think of that sooner? I'm still mad at him for coming up with that sooner. 
but great and, job. And in, in usual Marshall Milligan, it was just kind of like almost with a disgust, like, yeah. I don't understand why we just don't <laughs> put a charge on this robot and drive it down there and blow his ass up. Yeah, that's kind of what it was. Well, we had gotten called back as ASLs to talk about the plan or whatever we're trying to do, and Ryan had come up with about 19 different ways of solving that, you know, if you knew Ryan. And uh, it was, it was, and I was down with a few of them, actually. You, you know, any of them, any of them involve a, involve a saw. Yeah, so, yeah. well, we talked about shooting, you know, so anyway, and, hey, but he was thinking outside, the, he was coming up late, but I'd walk back, and if somebody had said it sooner, I didn't hear it, that was the first time I had heard somebody mention that, was Marshall, and within the next however many minutes, that plan was going into effect as far as prepping it and getting it built and all that, so outstanding thing, and out, literally thinking outside the box on how we were using the that, and again, that's obviously very well known, you know, it's a uh, tragic tragic day i mean just cannot imagine you know what those families are still going through just all the people that were down there as uh, i remember jumping out of the truck you know and driving through squad cars going by me going the opposite way at the time not knowing they were emergency evac and you know mm-hmm. wounded people out of there officers and civilians jumping out and just carnage just debris and seeing officers just in, tucked in everywhere and running you know and running in every direction and then to go up there and just basically turn into that waiting game, which is what we were doing, you know, while all that was going on. Four and a half hours. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we'd already been at work for, you know, a few hours already that night. And that turned into the next day. And I had, I had left my phone in the truck when I jumped out. And so, you know, and we had a little lull in the action and Chris Webb. So when we get done getting ready to get everything done, we knew what the plan was going to do or going to be. And I had told uh, Josh Hurtel, he was a sergeant over there at the time. I said, Josh, if we leave here, we're going to leave this this uh, walkway or this hallway open to the garage. He'll, he could get by us because we've got to fall back so far. We've got to stay here until y'all are ready. And then I don't know what we're going to do because we can't leave it. And uh, he's like, who's got robots? Well, we didn't have anything we could use. And so he calls down there, and somebody got a hold of the FBI. And to their credit, the two dudes came up there. They go, what do you need? We go, we need you to take your robot, put it down here in the hallway, monitor it, so we can see if he comes out. And they're like, hey, whatever you need to do. Those guys did a great job. They didn't do anything but what we asked. And I was like, hey, I need one guy to stay with me so I can coordinate with the FBI and one guy to hold the hawks. We cannot take a chance on him getting away from us. And everybody was doing so much work. I mean, it was so much going on. I can only imagine, you know, from your side over there. But we just knew that if he tries to get away, he can't get by where all y'all were. But this is where he could get by. So we're like, we got to put that robot there. So they put the robot, and we fell back as far as we could. Uh, but we couldn't leave until we knew we were about ready to go. And so Josh goes, hey, they're about ready to start moving it down. Y'all need to move back. So we moved back, set the robot down there, and set it off. And then when the wall kind of caved in, it almost was covering him up. So we moved back up to there, and I knew the room was, you know, had been destroyed, but you couldn't see him. And Webb. Chris Webb moves in there just over my shoulder and pulls back that one piece of drywall, and there he was right underneath it. And so I was just looking right at him, and uh, you knew it was over with. And uh, I, I don't think – I know I didn't. Nobody could understand the gravity, what was what had already happened and what was going to be happening for, you know, the next however many days after that. New people had been hurt. New people had been shot. To what extent? Didn't know how many officers, how many of this. You just didn't know, and it just took, you know – took the whole night and the next morning and there's that picture of a lot of us sitting in the uh, lobby of El Centro watching the news and for most of us seeing stuff that we did yeah, not know about. Getting details right there yeah. for the first time yeah. even though we were there. We were there. We had just taken off our body armor. Of course it's July, it's hot and everything and we were just kind of sitting just wiped out and watching the news for the first time 
learning stuff. So, what, were, what was going through your mind watching that after what you just gone through? Well, originally there was a thought of having two people there. They thought there was two guys, mm-hmm. and some people have been diverted to I think the Omni thing. I think Rob yep. Hamilton, those guys went down there, and so again. Always trying to look down the range, like, man, is there somebody else? Is this a coordinated effort? And so we were kind of, don't let, and I know this sounds easy to say this now, but we're like, don't let your guard down because there could be some dude in a hallway or a building right now just playing, you know, possum on us like a sleeper guy or something that just waiting for things to. Or he could have had bombs planted like the headquarters. Well, I mean, 13 months ago or earlier, we just had that. And so everybody was. To sit there and say you were just done. I mean, you were, everybody was wiped out. But at the same time, you're like, this thing could still go on right now. It could be happening. We may not be done. It, yeah, it was it, just people just everywhere. It was a single actor, but it was a national movement. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I mean, no so it, it wasn't like this is a an isolated guy with an isolated idea. So we, we were waiting for the next one. We're waiting for the follow-up. We're waiting for more of this. It wasn't – I mean, he w- ended up being a lone wolf – in this regard on the actions, but it was a collective yeah. mindset. Well, if you think about the officers that were killed in Louisiana just a few days yes. later, that shooter was in Dallas the night of July 7th. They've proven it. They had pictures of him. In he a, did a in, video. He did a video, and they had pictures of him, stills, from the room that was in Dallas. And so was he? He claimed motivated? to be inspired. Yeah, absolutely inspired by that. And so he could have easily gone bad right then and there. The next, that was on a Thursday into Friday. He could have gone bad on Friday. It was Which like is, a, it's suspected he ended up showing up that Sunday at headquarters. Yep. And that was the scare we had at yeah. headquarters. And so that was another thing. We spent the whole day clearing the whole. I remember that. Uh, you know, because you guess you have IBM and then, you know, and then us having to clear all those vehicles because somebody said they saw a guy with a hood running around with a gun and they didn't do anything about it. They just ran in and told somebody. It says, so. We spent the next four hours clearing that just a few days later. So, in to what Danny has said about it, it was it was a national level in, in the world. In the world, took note of that obviously. You know, as far as other thing that was going on, and you're you're naive to think that hey, things the game just got changed again. You know, it's a new set of rules that you're dealing with because you know 13 months earlier we're like you know they had never seen radio remote control devices like we had there this guy had never been in the military he learned it on internet and so you're like hey the, the game just got changed the rules just got changed a little bit and you have to recognize that as just as a police officer not just a SWAT guy that you're still dealing with things that you never talked about and we never talked about explosives in the academy or how to deal with that or had to be aware of ieds or anything like that now it is something you got to be aware of in just in as an everyday police officer and then that thing happening you know on july 7th change it again and just like 9-11 shifted the whole world especially in america you know that happened i mean i was i've been on for two years when 9-11 happened and how that changed everything that we do and those again those are benchmarks in american policing those two incidents and they happened you know 13 months apart right there in downtown dallas messages matter right oh absolutely yeah there's no question and so those are you know those are two big incidents that obviously gain worldwide there's a lot of things that go on every day that prepare you for those incidents. Those are those warrants, that training we talked about earlier. Uh, but those are things that the average listener who doesn't know anything about necessarily Dallas, that's something they probably are aware of. So Sun Tzu wrote, even the finest sword plunged into salt water will eventually rust. How do you deal with some of the things that you've seen and some of the things you've been a part of? Well, it kind of goes back to your question earlier as far as the evolving or the complacency is that no matter how good you are, how sharp you are, how shiny you are, you know, we all get rusty. We all this. And you 
take a week off, a couple of weeks off on vacation, you realize you're just not what it was just when you left, you know, two weeks earlier. Or people I've had, you know, multiple guys come through that have been on, out for injury. It takes time. And so that is something that happens at, at no fault of their own. But what you can do is you can you can be vigilant about not allowing that to happen to yourself and your people. And if you do that yourself, how can I hold anybody else accountable? And so that's something you got to do right away is any kind of senior guy or leadership is that you got to hold yourself accountable first. And I'm going to be sharp. I'll have my equipment ready to go. It's going to be, it's going to be in working order. It's going to do the, what I need it to do. I'm on, my batteries are good. My, my radio's charged. My zero's good. You know, I've got all my gear like today, rain, weather, you know, weather gear, cold weather gear, you know, whatever you need, you have that. And so if you're complacent or you fall off or you like, you know, back to that quote, as far as you could get rusty, it's hard. It's hard to keep that going if you're not doing yourself. And so it can happen to anybody and not necessarily by fault, but uh, most of the rust is brought on by people due to themselves. Obviously, you can injury, anything like that can happen. But you've got to, you've got to, it is every day. It's the grind. Well, so the way I read into his question was the salt water eventually makes even the finest sword rusty was I took it as over time, these experiences you've had can wear you down. And I think maybe he's also talking about like mental or, and also physical. So maybe answer to that. And I'll also say that you are someone that there's no question that you'll always pass the PT test. It's not even a concern. No one even thinks about, well, maybe Matt might not pass it this time. And I'd say I look over my eight years being here and you're someone who's always real healthy, stays in shape, doesn't have any health issues. So what, what do you do to maintain that? I mean, what is your lifestyle or what is that focus on there for you to maintain mental health and your physical health for this job? Well, I'm sorry if I misunderstood what you're asking. Uh, I guess that's the way I took it. I think, yeah, absolutely. I can see that you, you're only going, you're only going to be good at a job that you enjoy, I think is a big part of that. And if you get to, you may enjoy it at one time, but maybe you just lost the lust for it or the desire for it. It's really hard to be good at that job. And so biggest thing is, is I, I still enjoy getting up, coming and doing this job. And when we, I know we got a couple of war- warrants to run that day. Like, man, that is a great day. I mean, I, I mean, I love that coming in and, you know, jumping in there and solving problems and going and doing all that. Cause you know, the call outs, you're at the mercy of the winds. They just happen when they happen. They're not pre-planned obviously, but the warrants is obviously that's what, you know, health preparers, I think that's why we've been so successful in a lot of this stuff is because we do run a lot of warrants for active. Uh, but uh, at the same time, you know, trying to keep a good mental focus, like, hey, this thing's real. We got to do sharp. You know, I I don't eat as probably clean as I would like to. I can be honest with that. I enjoy the Mexican food. Blue Goose. Blue Goose. Yeah. Shout out Blue Goose. Yeah, shout out to Blue Goose. But it's all about moderation, too. You know, I uh, you can enjoy things to a certain degree. You know, I enjoy it. But, yeah, I mean, I, I stay active. I, I run a lot, you know, because, you know, it's part of the PT test. But uh, I remember – you're playing football and they're like you gotta be agile mobile and hostile i think that kind of still matters now you can be agile enough to do things you know like coming through the house you know and moving through you know because these things are not wide open as you know you got to be able to have good footwork and i think you know being playing sports and all that happens you gotta be mobile enough to be able to you know move through the doorways you know and the hallways or get off the apc and go and you gotta be able to take the fight to them sometimes and uh I think that's that. That's a fine line because you got to know when to when to do it, when not to do it. There's 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 moments 
that you can seize to solve problems, and you got to know when that is. And that's something you can't coach. It's just inherent. Some people, I just think, just are more comfortable doing that than others. Um, so, but yeah, you try to take good care of yourself. I try to stay active. That biggest thing goes back to I have to be able to do what I'm asking somebody else to do. So if I want you to go up there and run the run run one at this door and go solve problems in there. I got to be able to do it myself. If you need to pry a door or a cage or set a harpoon or go up and port a window, I got to be able to do all that myself. And by staying involved and trying to do things with the training and you know, and if you lead by example as far as like, hey, I'll be PTing, I'll be shooting, I'll be doing my thing because I don't want anybody to say. Like he's like, well, you, you know, it's no surprise he failed the PT test or he's struggling. I can't imagine somebody saying that about me. Or you go out and go, man, he's struggling with his shooting. Well, he never comes out and shoots. Well, you're not going to be able to say that. Now, I've said this before. If you make a mistake or something that goes wrong, you will, people go, man, I'm surprised by that. He usually is solid and squared away. Whereas they go, figures. You can't live like that. And if they're saying that about you in this job, then you need to leave or you need to reevaluate what you're doing in life. Because if your people, your peers – whether, you know, they've been there longer than you or not, if they don't have that confidence in you, then how are you expect to go in and do your job? Because you may be tapping that guy up, and they go, that's something that guy just tapped me up. Now I know that guy, man. He wasn't shooting very good. Or I go, got to run up a flight of stairs, and, you know, I don't know if that guy's going to – you know, you can't have that doubt in your own mind. Because if you doubt in your own mind, what are they going to think? Matt, in that leadership role of the ASL, do you do you tell people? I mean, some people may not be self be aware that they've devolved. And, and and they're not they're not uh, performing up to par. I, there are times where you've got to discuss things with certain people, mm-hmm. but we've had good athletes that have stayed there way past the time they should have left, yeah. and, and it wasn't like they couldn't pass the PT test. But they were there, and it, again, you try to take in care body, of, but not yeah, mind. Yeah, you try yeah. to take care of your house. Like there's four squads there. You know, if somebody from another squad come out and goes, "Hey, Matt, what do you think?" They solicited that information. I would tell them as a whole, it's really not my job. Just like I was go go to that ASL and go, Hey, Joe's, he really struggled on this assignment. You may want to discuss that with him as they would do that with me. And that's the way it should be. But there are times when it's live, we don't have time for discussion. You got to just get after somebody and tell them. So yeah, that happens. I've had discussions with people over the years about, Hey, you need to, you know, this, and that's not an easy discussion. They usually push back and I get that, but uh, but at the same time, that's part of your job is in that job. You know, nobody says it's going to be easy. Well, because somebody's not, not job there. may affect a whole team. Well, absolutely. Because of, yeah. And you're not there to make enemies, but you're not there to make friends either. Sure. And so that's part of that leadership is that you got to have a responsibility. And we can be out and go out and have food and have lunch and with people and get along and have a great time. But it will not save you if you're messing up. And they know that. And that's not – and it goes the other way too. They could come back and go, Matt, you really screw that up. And that's fine. And I, I'm – and they all know they if they need to say something to me, that's fine. I try to minimize those opportunities, you know, you know where they can't because I because you know. But I'm taking off today, yeah. So you all just do your thing. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's uh, but I, I want them. If anything, people go. I expect him to hold me accountable, and if that's what they want to say, that's fine because I 100 percent believe in that. So yeah. All right. So if you know the enemy and you know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself, but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer defeat. What have you learned about yourself through the Dallas Police Department in your career here? I think that many people, everybody at this table, we all came from different walks of life, different parts of the country, different things, that many different people can be great Dallas, just great police officers or law enforcement. 
Dallas is a melting pot in a lot of ways. You look at people. So there is not one common thread, I think, that sets you up for success. The one thing that I believe in is you got to be – you just got to be committed and disciplined to be good. Not you're not walking in and go, I'm going to be the greatest homicide guy or whatever. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I think a lot of people say that, and they're not really committed to be to be the great. Whereas you got to say, look – and I've said this before. When I came over, I just wanted to be the guy – because you don't know what you're going to do. You don't know your aptitude. I mean, I didn't. I, w- I didn't think of when I come over. I was like, man, they're going to fire me any dish day, that first six months, because you screw something up. You're like, they're going to just kick me out of here. And I just I just knew they were going to, because you you'd mess this up or whatever. They're like, no, nah, we don't want you. You have to have that desire to say, look, I wanted to be the guy that go, hey, I'm taking him on a drive-by to go do this. Uh, can, we, can we take Matt to go do this? You're like, yeah, that's fine. Or can I borrow him to do a pool? And that was – and when I first started out, that was one of the really the first things I started doing was setting up the APCs and the pools on the windows and prying doors. And you would get used by other teams. They would come and go, hey, can I borrow Matt to do this? I'm like, yeah, go ahead. And so when they trust you to come in and do that, you're like, hey, that, that says something because they're not going to pick you. They don't trust you. And back then we had a lot more people to pick from. It was such a bigger team. So when you got picked to go do the job, it was like a badge of honor that somebody trusted you to go do that job. And so – when you look at those things, I think that when you look at what helps make you successful, you know, what, you know, being prepared mentally, looking downrange, coming up with solutions like how can I get better, trying to perfect your game, trying to look at how I can, you know, again, there's no shame in trying to emulate people who have done it before you, right? We all do that. And I've heard people say, oh, I don't want to be, I was like, dude, there's no, look. It's hard to come up with something brand new over here. Pretty much everything we're doing, somebody's already done it. You're just trying to master that skill. And so there's no, you know, so looking at good people that are above you or wherever you are and saying, tell me why that's the best way to do it. And then be a student of the game. And back to that quote, if you think about this, you know, if, he, if they're confident in what they can do and what their strong points and their deficiencies are, and they take the time to do that assessment on their opponent, they know when, where to go, you know, how to strike them, how to, how to, to go after them. But when you don't know, you're just fifty fifty whether or not you're gonna win or not, you know, and I think that's a lot of that times what happens. All right, so this one's kinda of personal for me here. Uh if words of command are not clear and distinct, if orders are not thoroughly understood, then the general is to blame. But if orders are clear and the soldiers nevertheless disobey, then it's the fault of the officers. Um I would never characterize you as being timid or afraid to speak your mind really. Um Oftentimes, I'd get a text message or a phone call on the way home from operations at 2 or 3 in the morning. And Don't by, ever do that again. By oftentimes, I mean every time for the first probably five years I was there. Uh, you let me know where I screwed up and, and what went well. And, I mean, we had like our own little debriefs after just about every operation, and I always appreciated the feedback. I mean, it was it was big for me because even you weren't even the ASL at that point, but you you felt like, hey, I need to say something to you, and you, you were never afraid to actually say it. Is this something that you've always had? Well, I, I think it is to a large degree. Um, again, I'll go back to sports. Playing sports for a long time matters. And I was the defensive captain, eighth grade, all the way through you know my senior year. I called essentially every defensive play for us almost all the way through for five years. And so not that other people couldn't do it. It fell to me, and I was glad to do it, and they trusted me to do it. But, you know, <clears throat> just like when you go from – junior high to high school to JV to varsity, 
the game just gets, you know, it's faster pace. There's more going on. There's more stuff to keep up with. And you realize you got to elevate yourself and continually ascend. And that's one of the things I always like to say. We're constantly ascending around here. We're not just waiting. We're not just resting on our laurels. And you recognize that if you have a passion for it and you have a knack, I guess, is you know, because some people are just more soft-spoken than others. If you have the ability to communicate and you can get your point across quickly and timely and, you know, and, to the point, sometimes it may be brutal, but it's to the point where you can make calls on the fly and you are trusted to make decisions. And that goes back to, I think that's a big part of what helped me over here was doing that because you, you get a play in and then they would adjust. That's exactly what we do over here, right? You have a plan of what the base defense is and then they do something different and you adjust off of that. It's very much what we do over here. Uh, on operations, and so I think it, it, it correlates, and, that gives, and not to say that it's the same, but I just think it helped me, and so I was comfortable giving out changes then, you know, like, hey, we need to change this or move that, and it, I, I guess it primed me for being more vocal, you know, being, hey, you got to be willing to be talking, and there's times where you realize there's no time for a committee. Everybody else got to be quiet and just listen to what we're doing. This is what we're doing. This is how it's going to happen, and because everybody's talking, everybody's listening. And so when you get into here and you start understanding and the, and the game slows down for you and you kind of see how all those places and those chess pieces are moving and all this, and then it comes down to like, well, that guy probably didn't realize that because somebody probably didn't take the time to tell him. And so I might be able to do it right now. But that's that phone call on the way home, you know, saying, hey, did, did y'all ever consider this? And that's something I always try to do. And instead of just telling you that you're wrong, go, hey, what was your thought on this? And you may be able to tell me something that I was unaware of. I'm like, okay, I can see why he did that. Or you go, okay, well, it really didn't matter. It's still a dumb idea. And here's the reasons why you would not do it that way. And that was the way it was explained to me. And I learned that way by saying, okay, here was your plan. This is why it wouldn't work in here. And here's the four or five things. Because if I come in and go, that's a bad idea. We're not going to do it. You go, okay, fine. What are we going to do? And I say, we're going to do it this way. You're like, okay. And it works out. You're like, okay. But you didn't learn anything. All you learned was it was a bad idea. You didn't learn why it was a bad plan. And that's the big thing about us over there, and I've always tried to do, and not just me. A lot of guys do it. And that's something that Tim did a lot. Is like, let me tell you why it's a bad idea. The reason why that's a bad idea, you see that that stump right there? That is not, we're not going to get by that. Or there's a gas meter right by the window you want to pull, you jackass. We're not going to be able to do that. You got to realize that. And so little things like that, you're like, okay. And so all those little things, you know, matter. And then you, you, you put that in there and you work on that. And then you add to it and you add to it. And I think that's what happens when, you know, there'd be times where I'm like, why are they doing this? And you've been in there where you hear stuff on the radio and you're like, that makes absolutely no sense. Because you've already worked through all that in your mind where they have it. And you know that at, at step 21, they will realize that's a bad idea. They're at step nine. Because they, they think it's good. And like and you're like, we've already worked all past that. We've already solved all that. The nine guys over here all recognize that's a bad idea. And so you're trying to say the reason why that's a bad idea is all this because you have time. Or sometimes there's that, you don't have that time. And so you're like, no, we're not going to do this. And people are like, well, he's just doing that. It's like, no, I've already worked all the way through it. And so those are the kind of discussions that I have with you. Like, did you recognize this? Did you anticipate that? Was there a thought to do this? And I think sometimes, you know, there's a great saying, don't fall in love with the plan. And, you know, that plan's got to be able to be adjusted to some degree, to somewhat. And uh, so I think sports has a big part of it. For me, it did. Some people may not. Uh, but I would hate for somebody to be hurt for God to be killed. And I go, I knew if we did that, that was a bad idea. I knew if we did this, we would have solved that problem. And I didn't say anything. And you're hurt or killed. Because, and I go back to Todd Wellhouse on Oak Park. When that happened, 
he he looked at me just dead in the eye and he says if you're ever here long enough to matter and where you have a say so don't ever let this shit happen again that's exactly what he said to me because he knew what had happened and i remember that was february two th- or 2006 and i remember that till today about how poignant and straightforward that was because todd was very straightforward about things because they all knew that there was a, a, a hiccup in that player multiple hiccups and they went along with it and it is all of them will tell you to this day it still burns them down and so i think that along with you know just your personality to some degree be more straightforward you know it just kind of culminated into saying things well, I always appreciated it, whether I whether I told you or not. Um, I think there's sometimes it, you may not have, but well, the timing might not have been right on all of them. You know, three, four o'clock. Timing is important yeah. and delivery. Well, sometimes you got to get it out right now because otherwise I can't go to sleep. So well, there, like, there is yeah. no there is no question on delivery with Matt, and, and I like the way he was like. Well, sometimes you tell him this and that, and I was like, no, you basically told me I screwed up. Like it, it was no, hey, what were you thinking? It was more like, what were you thinking? Don't, don't it, ever. Do it that wasn't again. really a question. Yeah, don't yeah. don't answer my question. Just understand that. Basically, you're wrong. the only thing you did right there is uh, you tied your shoes correctly yeah. that's yeah. about it Th- thanks for getting to the right house yeah that's about all you did right today is go to the right door the McLennan County guys <laughs> yeah. need to add a few more words on their t-shirt they need yeah. to yeah, yeah they're gonna ba- have long sleeves basic sure. fundamentals and then what was it agile mobile and hostile, hostile yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah. well that's the big thing you tell them is that, look, the only thing you did right today was show up at the right house everything else you did was wrong I'm gonna You're put like, that really? in the episode description actually <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> agile mobile and hostile you gotta be so yeah. what advice would you give to younger officers or anyone really looking to join a SWAT team well, I've had many people ask me that. They see us at the range or they're out on the perimeter on a call out or warrant. They go, hey, what do I need to do? I said, first of all, you need to stay in shape because I don't care how good you shoot. If you can't pass that PT test on a consistent basis, not to say that it is the most important thing, but for a guy coming over, you need to be in shape. And that's them. you need to work on your pistol because some of them don't have rifles or whatever. Try to go to classes. Uh, one of the guys we just took over here, uh, the, the advanced SWAT school, the, the class that's going on right now this week, matter of fact, he was in it a few years ago. He was in it a few years ago, and that's how I met him because I saw him wearing a Dallas uh, vest. I'm like, you work for Dallas PD? He said, yeah. And so again, he was paid his own money to go to the school. And uh, so, like, when I came over, I don't know if anybody in patrol ever went through a TTPOA class in preparation for SWAT. If they did, I didn't know anything about it because I certainly didn't. It was not even talked about. I, don't even, I didn't even know TTPOA existed. I came to SWAT. So I think there's no question that the officers that are coming on now, a lot of them are so much further ahead than when I came over. We didn't have patrol rifle when I came over here. I mean, you didn't do anything like that. Uh, you know, active shooter, rapid response was something you did once you got out of the out of in patrol. Now they do it in the academy, the shield work. You know, they use 40 millimeters. Now there's so much more that patrol does that's similar to us now or as far as that kind of stuff than we ever did. So, you know, be astute and, you know, be smart, you know, stay in shape, work your pistol, try to go to some classes when you can. Uh, not that necessarily that's going to necessarily help you for coming over here, but I think it shows it shows desire and aptitude that people, they, they, they care. They, they give a damn. They want to be there. They're putting in the energy and the effort for it. And uh, be coachable. That is a big thing. You be coachable. Because we, we have seen guys come to these schools and necessarily even – ones that are selected just the ones that come to the assessment schools with us and with by the time day two is over you're like i can't tell that guy anything lack of aptitude yeah and you're just if you can't be coachable in a, in a class that you're trying to come over here where are you going to be at in two years from now you know and believe me when you have that that is boy that that, that is that is a deficit you cannot get out of it is brutal because once they're dug in you're done they self-destruct usually yeah, absolutely
Well, Matt, I think that's a perfect way to wrap this up. Um, thank you for coming here today, number one, and uh, for being a professional constantly. I mean, you're, you're that guy that I don't think your shoes have ever been untied. Uh, and I appreciate that about you. I, I really do. Um, there's a lot of guys over there that I really like and uh, respect, and, and you're right up at the top of that list. I appreciate that. Thank you. you I don't care who you are, what you do. You want to believe that what you're doing matters. You know, people will act like that. No, let's be honest. You want you want it to matter to some degree, and I appreciate that because it does matter. It matters to me. And so, you know, if we can be professional and do our jobs, and, and there's, there's if your people trust you, there's no better – compliment in this business in my mind than the people that are on your side of you 100% trust you if you can do that man you've done something right so I appreciate that thank you yeah your reputations matter around here and and me on the outside looking in a SWAT I've worked with y'all on several operations back in the CRT days and I've always respected your professionalism and your dedication to that unit Uh, everything that I've heard about you and even some people that butted heads with you I believe they respect you and they and they understand that everything you do uh, for that unit is for Dallas SWAT. And I can't tell you how, how much I appreciate that. And I, I I love Dallas SWAT and I love that unit. And I believe the, the accomplishments of that unit, the foundation that you've laid and you've poured on that very, very sturdy foundation that was left by the Claggetts and the Cockrells and... And, and the Tim Houston's, you're pouring on top of that, and it's going to solidify that unit for years to come. Yeah, no, thank, thank you. you. Appreciate that. Yeah, Matt, thanks for your leadership. Thank you for taking that serious. And these guys already said, you being an epitome of a professional, it's greatly appreciated, and it, it's made the Dallas SWAT team what it is. Thanks. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you, guys. Thank you, brother. Yeah, man.